The exit of Aegon the Conqueror and most of his remaining soldiers from the army that he brought into Dorne triggered the defenestration of Sunspear, which featured all of the Targaryen garrisons becoming no more. They were all slaughtered. And the non-Dornish lords who were appointed to administer and rule the subjected territory were treated much the same, with a little extra torture sprinkled in before their lives were ended. Unsurprisingly, this was not the end of the violence, though it never did return to the sort of standard war of armies and sieges and such. It was more of a war of shadows, uh, a war of constant dragon fire raining down, despite the war of shadows. It was kind of an unusual variation on, on this type of war. Sean last time mentioned Vietnam and Afghanistan, and that's very very appropriate as a parallel. The destruction of many Dornish castles, structures, fields was a constant thing. Though, maybe not that many Dornish people. The Dornish people were pretty good at staying alive despite all of this hellfire and starvation and destruction being rained on them. From there, it got worse, though. Bounties and assassinations, maimings, other atrocities, each year seemingly worse than the last. Yet with the passage of time, it seemed clear that very little that either side did seemed to move the needle towards an end. And though Dorne as a whole suffered mightily, arguably the Targaryens lost more in terms of power and prestige. Isn't that often the case with war, though? Nobody wins. Everybody loses. This one is a particularly bad... Uh, Good example, no, bad example of, well, okay, strong example, powerful example, tragic example. Yes, the first Dornish War, the second half of it, has all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Valar Reread Us for Fire and Blood here on HOW Pod every Monday or every Sunday, rather. We do a live stream. Well, almost every Sunday. When we do live streams, they tend to be on Sundays. The difference, of course, comes during TV seasons, which is usually hmm, more like Mondays and Saturdays and other things. But yeah, every video is done on YouTube, and then you can find it on Spotify after it's been edited. So a cleaner copy is up on Spotify and anywhere you find podcasts in audio-only form. And if you want to go with an ad-free experience, go on Patreon and join us there. That's where you get the ad-free versions of every episode. Is there anywhere you can find a dirtier version? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the NSFW versions of History of Westeros <laughs> podcast are available nowhere. History of Westeros at night. <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, that's the live version that you're tuning into right now. That's true. You I should know. edit this out of the podcast version and you only hear it if you were here live. <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, there's like a nip slip here. It just pops right out of my... <laughs> Kingsguard t-shirt here as, you know, I don't know how that would actually happen. Like, how is a nipple going to escape this? Sean, you've got a boy's shirt on. That's also a very strong way to protect your, your innards. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I thought to wear this shirt because it's kind of a, a bloody violent show. Yeah. <laughs> about how ambition and revenge can bring out the worst in us. True. Featuring characters with superpowers. That's some parallels to this. That's a good point, yeah. And I've got the Kingsguard shirt on because this is the formation of the Kingsguard happens during this episode. Even though we're not going to focus on that, it does happen. We're going to mention it, so. Hmm. Uh, there's also another layer. This is, this, is, this is a boy shirt, but it's a mashup with the gorillas, and a lot of gorilla warfare is featured here. Okay, so. <laughs> yes, yes. The, the, the different types of gorilla in play there. That's cool. <laughs> That's neat. 
Well, starting this week, by the time you are hearing this, it may have already started, is our patrons topics moot, where those of you who are subscribed to us on Patreon can vote on a whole bevy of topics that we'll be dropping over the course of the next month or so. And those topics will become episodes during the year. Uh, Dates will be TBD. But those episodes will be made, and it is the first of what will be a yearly thing. I expect we'll expand on it next year after we've had one in the books and kind of get a feel for how we want to do it, get some new ideas, and, and kind of flesh it out a bit more. So it should be pretty fun. So you can all uh, participate in the very first Topics Moot by joining us on Patreon, patreon.com slash history of Westeros. And a shout out to our good friend Nina. She gave us a lot of excellent notes for today. Her blog is at goodqueenalley with one L dot tumblr dot com. The latest blog post she's got up there is a question on what were the best times of the Targaryen? Like what were the golden ages of Targaryen rule? Uh, a, a straightforward answer is Jaehaerys, but there's other answers. And Nina goes into detail as to why Jaehaerys is thought of the way he is. It's not just a yes him. Well, there's some nice detailed explanations there. I recommend it. If you have questions for us, like I said, that question came uh, from one of Nina's readers. If you have questions for us, you can post them live and Ashea will hopefully see it. She can't see every comment. She's doing a lot back there. But if she sees it and it's a good question, we will answer it live. If your question is missed or you want to be sure we see it, send it directly to us at westeroshistory at gmail.com or contact us through Patreon or one of the other sites that you're linked to us on. Trivia question for today. The answer will be at the end, but it's also during the episode. I will slyly or not so slyly give you the clue to what this, I'll give you the answer to this question during the episode if you are attentive enough to hear it. Or maybe you already know. What title created by Aegon the Conqueror was only held by one man ever? And bonus, if you can name who that person was. The answer to this was actually last in the last episode as well, but it's going to be repeated in this one. I was proud of myself for knowing the answer to this question. Nice. Good job, Sean. There we go. You're becoming less unsullied all, al- all <laughs> the time. Every day that goes by, you are, you are slightly less unsullied. <laughs> so I actually, in the intro, called it the second half. I stylishly called it that. But really, it's not really the second half. It's the second portion, because the first part of the war was two or three years. And that's what we covered last time. This is more like six or seven years, maybe even eight. So it is a longer period of time and a more brutal period of time in a lot of ways, though certainly the last one was pretty darn brutal as well. You got people trapped in rock slides, burned alive, disappearing in deserts of exposure and thirst. Yeah, none of it's very pleasant, but it's all it's all not real. So ha. <laughs> here's a passage that best defines this episode, quote, Aegon Targaryen was not a man to accept defeat. The war would drag on for another seven years, though after 6 AC, the fighting degenerated into an endless bloody series of atrocities, raids, and retaliations. Broken up by long periods of inactivity, a dozen short truces and numerous murders and assassinations. We read that quote last time, but it really bears repeating because it really sets up what's coming here, and we have to sort of imagine what some of these things are. Like, we don't know when any of these dozen short truces are. None of them are specified for us. We don't know what these long periods of inactivity are that we can kind of imagine them. Maybe winter helped with that, or even though it was not full-blown winter in Dorne, it's still 
That would maybe slow things down. At least it's a reasonable guess. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I agree. There's a lot left interpretation error. Like a short truce might be one day, you know, like, and <laughs> yeah. a dozen could be a number thrown out there just to represent, you know, several. Kind of how they say a thousand years ago. Yeah, a dozen yeah. or so. Yeah, it's not a specific yeah. number. And some of the truces, I wonder, could have been maybe more or less local, mm. you know, like okay. maybe this group or this region or this battle was put on hold for a day or Sure, week. that makes sense. Yeah. But, uh, and maybe sometimes Aegon or some other leader might have said, okay, you know, we're going to hold off for the next three months. But that doesn't mean individual people down on the ground didn't still like exact their revenge mm-hmm. you know modern day equivalent of throwing a molotov cocktail across a wall or something you know yep good point good point yeah so this, so fire and blood summarizes a lot of the war naming major events from each year but otherwise it leaves a lot unspecified which is not a big deal for us there's enough there for us to go into sandbox mode it's a good excuse for that we like sandbox mode and doran is already a natural sandbox so that kind of works anyway mm-hmm <laughs> And Nina adds that it makes the most sense for a historian with the conceit of Gildane because, well, there weren't a lot of traditional pitch battles. The, even the way Westorian history, Westeros history, uh, Westerosi historians would write history is challenged by this because they would have had a way of writing about war that's just very tilted towards what Westeros war normally looks like. And this is not what Westerosi war normally looks like. So they might not have might have missed some of the nuance like they weren't necessarily prepared to accurately record it in a way that maybe um well a, a more modern like a real world historian might have some of that experience from having read about these cases elsewhere but a gildane or something well they would have read about other conflicts between the reach and dorn or the stormlands and dorn but nothing none of those conflicts probably were ever anything like this Certainly didn't have dragons before involved. Certainly didn't have an attempt to conquer Dorne. That had never happened from, like, I don't think the Stormlands ever tried to completely conquer Dorne. I don't think the Reach ever tried to completely, if they did, they never got anywhere close to it. (laughs) So that would be the difference, if not both of those things. So yeah, very different. They don't have, like, a lot of precedent to draw on in terms of, like, experience or past uh, writings to give themselves a leg up or a head start or some additional understanding. It might have even taken a certain passage of time to have the perspective to consider it a war or having all been a war continuously. Like I just imagine like in the middle of the hundred years war, like even 80 years in, they probably weren't calling it the 80 years war. It's right. Perspective we it's had like, after damn, it's still and, 80 years. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, partly because it wasn't continuous, right? There were breaks and it was happening between different factions over a large region, you know, similar to this. And, and another thing too, like, you know, the world has gone through different phases and styles of warfare or whatever, but a lot of European history, at least, uh, battles are a little more organized, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were, the armies would agree on a time yeah. and place to that weird? field. And sometimes <laughs> spectators would come to observe it, you know, and like, but this sort of guerrilla warfare might've been thought of as like, you know, unfair or they're cheating or they're not following the rules. And maybe it's not really even war. They're just like bandits or criminals or, you know. And this is probably where a lot of that reputation comes from. Like we see at the beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire, the Dornish have a reputation for like different styles of war. They get accused of poisonings, which you don't really see that very often. Like the Dornish don't actually seem to use poison any more than anybody else. I mean, they do use it, but like I said, it doesn't seem to be like an epidemic or anything, you know? And it's a little different from the Targaryen side, too. This sort of total war that they're exacting, right? Dragons just burning towns down and stuff. That's not normal in Westerosi warfare and probably not a lot of uh, 
Planetos in general. It probably it was, was during the freehold, like we saw them do that to the Roinar, but still that doesn't make it like yeah. normal. I mean, it may have been a yeah. part of history, but even they probably didn't just blow up every city because they, uh, they wanted to conquer too. Like they usually are subjecting people to their rule, not just annihilating them entirely, though there are exceptions. If it comes to bend the knee or die, they're going to choose, they're going to kill you rather than give up their supremacy. And we'll see that. <laughs> In the real world, Genghis Khan just, you know, slaughtered every yeah. man, woman, child, goat, dog, everything. You surrender immediately or it's, a, yeah, you, you get yeah. very little leniency. But that total warfare, and it's not like all of Europe was like, oh, I guess that's how we'll do it now. You know, even when we get to like the American Civil War, it was still more like, let's meet Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. and fight, fight at this point yeah. with these soldiers. And it was still less guerrilla warfare going on. So I think that's an important thing. And it's also true as well that maybe just this, for whatever reason, the sources are actually a little stronger. Like we know there's a Conquest of Dorne book written by Daron the First. And it's very detailed. We don't have it. We don't have a copy of it, but it exists. And we don't know, like, is there a book on the con- the First Dornish War? I mean, there probably is, but we ha- it hasn't been referred to. You know, it'd be kind of weird if there wasn't any book on that in world, considering such a major long-term event. But... It isn't actually like mentioned or referenced. So maybe they're just, yeah, maybe this is like a little bit of a, a missing piece in, in Westeros history itself. I mean, there's plenty of examples in the real world of periods of time where we just don't have good sources. Uh, so it, it's a huge story, though. And it, it, it sounds really big. And that's part of why I, I harp on this. That there's a lot of room for interpretation, a lot of room for missing events, a lot of room for expansion of this story someday. Maybe it'll be a TV show. Maybe there'll be additional material written in here. There's a lot of stuff that could be added a lot of pathos a lot of characters and how they feel about it all that, that's where there's a lot of room for uh, expanding Aegon the conqueror's personality is a pretty obvious one but there's so many other people in here there's so many other characters and that could be added and some that we know that would just need to be fleshed out like the widow lover and princess miria and visenya and rainis and and this various lords of the hellholt that are <laughs> gonna have a lot of things go wrong for them after their uh, their victory there in 10 AC that we're gonna get to today. You know, I can't believe I didn't think to to ask or research this before. What was Princess Maria's family like? Did she she was really old? Did she have grandchildren, great grandchildren? Yeah, she had Did all they... that. Yeah, you're, yeah, that's gonna be a big part of next episode actually next week or the week after because we will be discussing like, her family sort of takes a different tack than she does. <laughs> and yeah, you don't say it. yeah, right. <laughs> so. It's uh, that's going to be that's going to be interesting. But she is a Martell. So, yeah, her we don't know, like, if she had brothers or sisters and she probably outlived them, even if she did, because she lived to be in the mid 90s or something. And few real world people lived that long, let alone in Westeros. So I'm just imagining the drama that could be covered if there was a TV show yeah, just about this. Absolutely. It's time period. they would they would flesh that family out. They have some names already, but they would they would want to add a few more cousins here and there, probably. And yeah, uh, it, it would be very interesting, I think. A lot more interesting, I think, than the conquest itself, which I think is pretty interesting too. But it would—it's not interesting in terms of you know who's going to win or <laughs> well, that was yeah. close, you know, not stuff like that. It would be the, the the character stories that would be written into that. Nina also writes to the extent George wants to compare the First Dornish War to the Hundred Years War, which Sean, you mentioned the Eighty Years War. <laughs> it's like yeah, that <laughs> similar uh, vibes there, and. Again, this was a, a point she made last week about how one one similarity was that the, the monarchs of England called themselves kings of France until like the year 1800. <laughs> and this is kind of similar in that Aegon was calling himself king of the Roinar before, I mean, before this war even started. <laughs> he was calling himself king of the Roinar, <laughs> let alone before he Rainies went there to demand a surrender that never happened. So, yeah. But again, we're not just focused on the war. There are certain subtopics that 
we'll save for later because they're too big. But there's a lot of things that happen here in timeline order that kind of get breezed over in the book that we want to draw connections to. Like, it hardly mentions, Fire and Blood barely mentions the fact that Aenys and Magor were born during this war. It just brings that up later. It's like, by the way, in the year seven, Aenys was born. And it's like, well, wait, that was during the Dornish War. Wouldn't he have been like a target of a sat? Like, that should change. That should matter. And so I want to draw some of that out because I think it's lacking in the book. And it, it makes sense to discuss some of those things. And well, that's what we do here. We read between the lines. And if there's not as much to read between the lines, we add it. <laughs> we do our best with that. <laughs> so let's continue with the defenestration of Sunspear to lead ourselves into the newer events. Balon Greyjoy, of all people, why am I talking about him? Well, he once pointed out that if you bend the knee, you can later rise again and strike, right? It's you, no one ever died from bending the knee is basically what he said. It was like, yeah, that's a pretty good point, Balon. It's a good ego-free, like, good way to, you know, get rid of some pride and, and make some sense. I, I don't obviously agree with him on his greater point, but yes, forget your pride. Ned Stark wishes that he was more correct. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Good point. Yeah. So, and Doran did that, basically, without the bending the knee part. They're <laughs> just like, we're just going to hide, and we will rise again later, though. And they waited for him to leave, like the moment he left. And they had reason to believe that would happen. It wasn't a stroke of luck. Of course, Aegon the Conqueror is not just going to stay in Dorne the rest of his life. He's got a new kingdom to run. He's got a throne, that weird-ass throne he's making up there. He's clearly going to go sit on that and not stay down here. He had a lot, a lot to do up there, so it was a reasonable expectation that he would leave. And... They may have considered it a stroke of luck, however, how poorly he handled the conquest of Dorne. His policy of dominance through pure martial power was not working, and he didn't adapt to that at all. He just kept attacking and destroying things, and they kept not surrendering, and it just, well, it was very Sisyphean. Like, he, it was, clearly that wasn't going to work, but he kept trying. And one thing he didn't adapt to, sticking with this topic of Greyjoys, sort of, <laughs> is even after it became clear that he couldn't hold Dorne. He still didn't start to use ships and navies. He still didn't adapt to bring that in. And I know I've mentioned this before, but it kind of maybe shows his stubbornness. Maybe his initial plan was really strong, but he was slow to make changes when the initial plan started to fail. And by slow, I mean years and years and years of doing the same thing over and over and it not working. I want to give Aegon maybe a little more credit because he suddenly has a lot more to deal with right mm -hmm. now. So... A, he might be spending more attention on trying to work out trade deals and keep peace between the new lords and all this other stuff. And uh, additionally, it's not crazy to think that this would work like a war of attrition is a thing. And he has the huge advantage when it comes to that. I, I can see why it might have taken a year or two or three years for him to to shift gears. But it seems well, like he, he still he didn't, didn't after that. So yeah, that's the mistake. Exactly. He yeah. never did shift gears. <laughs> and you're right. Like if he's trying to deny them resources, like ships... That's a pretty obvious way to do that, like deny them trade. Yeah. And that is eventually what happened, but it wasn't because he denied them trade. It's because there was nothing left to trade with. There was just so uh, the quote that's going to come later is that Dorne was effectively a smoking ruin. Like there's nothing to blockade. Like what ships are going in and out? Like so it was done. It was accomplished a different way, <laughs> but he could have maybe done that sooner. Or anyway, destroying that the Planky Town, which is something we discussed last time. They would have eventually cleared that out and fixed it, but they, could, they wouldn't have had an opportunity if they were just worried that at any minute a dragon could return and just blow it all up again. What's the point of rebuilding something that could easily be taken down? And not until the war is over would, they, would it make much sense to do that. If Aegon did start to alter his plans, if we're sh selling short his flexibility, a clue to that might be how much he listened to the maesters. Recall that 
he created the office of Grand Maester, and he did it in the year 5 AC, which is pretty much like right after this war started, um, but or started to become take shape, but before Rhaenys came and burned the Planky Town. And this first Grand Maester was Oladar, who had been the Archmaester of History. So when we talked before about historical precedent and looking at past wars with Dorne for ideas, for strategies, for things that worked, for details on how to deal with the desert. Well, he maybe didn't have much to provide there. And maybe Aegon didn't listen to him. In any case, the guy didn't live very long. So it may have just been that. might have been the simplest answer of all. He didn't have... Didn't listen to the man because the man was only in office for a year or so. Actually, less than a year. He was replaced by a man named Leonce, who was the archmaster of either money or numbers. Because we don't know uh, the difference. Like, there's a red gold archmaster and a yellow gold archmaster. We don't actually know which is which. <laughs> one of them is money. One of them is just numbers. So they're kind of related. Either way, this guy was probably very important in setting up new economic policies or advising Aegon on things like taxation and things like that. So it's a pretty important role in, an early, in a new economy, in a new country, a new region, all that stuff. And this guy would have worked with Crispian Celtigar, the first master of coin, who we talked about in our House Celtigar episode last year. Of course, the Grand Maester office still exists, but one that doesn't is the Warden of Sands. <laughs> And that, it would have been interesting if there had been a Warden of Santa that had stuck, because he's like, well, Warden of the North, Warden of the South, Warden of the East, Warden of the West. Oh, wait, we need another one. Warden of the Sands? I don't know. We'll call it that. Yeah. Warden of the Sandbox in our case. So yeah, that was that Lord John Rosby fellow who only one to ever hold that title. So Castellan, he was Castellan of Sunspear, which is for a very short time before they murdered him. And that's the one who Mar Maria pushed out the window herself. Very symbolic. We, we mentioned that last time. So it, it's a little different, right? You, you kind of have to have... This was more of a like occupying force warden rather than a you're the guy that is in charge if there's an outside attack. So it's kind of, it is a little different in, in its conceit. In time, that might have evolved. Yes, but yes. they didn't have time for that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Never, yeah, exactly. And by, so by the time Aegon gets back to King's Landing, he's left, he leaves Dorne, the defenestration of Sunspear happens, we don't know when he hears about it, maybe there's some messengers that arrive on the road, they're like, oh my gosh, King, look what's happened. Maybe he doesn't get the, the most of the news until he actually arrives back home. We don't know if he marched with the army or if he just flew back on Beleriand to get there quickly. If he did, he's certainly not getting any news on the meantime. <laughs> Ravens don't fly to airborne dragons to deliver messages. I, I don't know that I needed to clarify that, but... It's kind of funny to picture that, right? So he would have, it's quite possible that he had no idea until getting back to King's Landing, what happened to Lord Oris? He's like, where, where, what happened to Lord Oris's army? Like it totally vanished. We never saw them. We never heard of them. He might finally find that out when, I don't know, there's maybe some ransom demands or someone, maybe taunting from the widow lover, the, the Lord Will guy. He uh, seems like he might be willing to do something like that. And that's a big deal. Like, Oris is, like, the fourth-ranked guy in the whole kingdom. You got Aegon, Visenya, Rhaenys, and then him, right? There's no heirs yet. Who would it be? Like, Lord Valarian isn't that powerful at this point. I, I, Oris is their blood relation. He's, like, their bastard half-brother. So he's got to be next in line. And, and that just, that includes, like, the throne. Like, if something weird were to happen, Visenya, Rhaenys, and Aegon are all killed he would have the best claim to the crown so having him is a really powerful hostage a really powerful man so he's the most elevated and connected man in the kingdoms that doesn't have a dragon <laughs> and at this point again this is the year six still no anise is going to be born the next year so there this is like 
possibly even the guy that some might consider the heir. It's unclear at this point who would have been the heir, but he's probably the best claim, you know? Uh, it's hard to see who it could have been. So that's a really big hostage, a really big deal, and it might slow Aegon's response down. He's like, well, if I launch into total war again right away, are you just are they just going to execute him? The answer is no, but it had to be on his mind. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so the year 6 AC, let's go there. Remember last time we discussed a lot about weather. That's another thing that's not super clarified in Fire and Blood, but we can figure out a lot because we knew there was two straight years of autumn. There's no mention of, a, or not two straight years, but it entered its second year. We don't know if it went two full years. You know, anyway, maybe an unnecessary clarification, but we're very detailed here at History of Westeros podcast. <laughs> Winter had almost certainly come by 6 AC if there had been nearly two years of autumn in 4 and 5 AC, right? That's a pretty safe assumption, I think. And there's not some mention later on of winter suddenly coming either. Right, so. yeah. So the defenestration happened late 5 AC is kind of our guess. The text says that the next phase of the war began in 6 AC, so that all, that all adds up. It's not important to just like completely pinpoint that, but the weather part is what I care about here. Even in much warmer Dorne, it's a bad time to raise armies, to begin a campaign that involves significant manpower. <laughs> not a... Like, not to mention how badly the Lesset armies found it. Like, remember, more than half of the soldiers Aegon raised died. And during the actual war part, and then a whole chunk more died when all the garrisons were slaughtered. So you got a lot of soldiers that are like, yeah, I do not want to go back there. <laughs> like, morale would be real low. Yeah, I was going to say, not only do you have that many less soldiers, but you're, it's that more difficult to get any more soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And harder to feed them. Yeah, so the timing is bad, so it's kind of a, maybe a, a respite. For Dorn, uh, timing, a lot of things worked out pretty well for them timing-wise, and they get some credit for maybe building their strategy around it. And after a long autumn, we would expect a longer winter. That's just, that's how it works, right? The longer the autumn, the longer the winter, which of course will also mean a longer summer following that winter, which this war is long enough that we need to factor that in too. It's going to explain, help us explain a lot, even if we don't have exact precise dates for when the seasons changed. Though we know things escalated, this may have been one of those periods of relative inactivity. Not a truce necessarily, but one of those implied, like, stuff just didn't happen for a while. The outset of winter, that makes a lot of sense for that. Or the Targaryens thinking they had things settled only for this uprising to happen and them struggling to find a way to respond immediately. Well, we can't just march down there again, so what do we do? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Well, there you go. Period of inactivity. Boom. Pretty straightforward. But perhaps they just had, maybe they just... Knew they had to wait. They probably, maybe they were like, well, they got us, well, but we're going to come back. We're going to be prepared next time. So it's like an extension of the dragon's interim in essence. They wanted to get back at Dorne. They were itching to, to finish what they started, but it, the timing was terrible. Establishing new laws and traditions and all that other stuff. They still got others, like we said, there's other things to do. Dorne is not the only concern here. You got to pay attention to the other six kingdoms or however you count them <laughs> six seven eight whatever the number is <laughs> it's another example of something that i can imagine that the details and drama of playing out on a, a show that featured all this there might be times where just to save face or to present the people with a victory of sorts when you know you can't attack anyway but you can pitch it like ah they're too scared of us, and they offered a truce. We were like, wow, we weren't attacking anyway. But you can make it seem like you have accomplished something by negotiating a truce. Yeah, it's a good way to fire up your own side. Just like anything that makes your people a little more confident, 
I know I've used this example before. It's been a while, though. It's, it's The Wire. Uh, Slim Charles once tried to fire up the, the, the gang by pointing to some guy that had been murdered, and all the gang thought it was the rival gang that murdered this guy. And then he go back, and they're having a meeting amongst the leaders, and the guy's like, yeah, it wasn't them. He's like, what? It wasn't them? He's like, don't tell them that. If it's a yeah. lie, we fight on that lie. That's better. Don't take, don't sap yeah. their morale. If we're going to go fight them, don't take their morale away, even if it's dishonest. You know, like they're about to go put their lives on the line. You know, you want them to be confident. And, you know, if you're not going to call the whole thing off, don't tell them the truth. You know, it's a similar sort of thing here. Yeah. Dishonesty is not the worst thing in the world. Like it's, it's unethical, but sometimes lying is a good thing. If it's saving lives, like there's no question lying is a good thing. Lying in of itself, I don't think is wrong. Using a lie to deny someone their rights. Yeah, okay. That's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And, and other examples too. But yeah, just in a vacuum, not all lies are evil or unethical or what have you. And this is one of those times, I suppose, especially if you're on the Dornish side <laughs> and you're fighting for your country, fighting for you know, your, your countrymen or your, your lives, et cetera. What's a few lies in, in, mixed into that when, when your lives are on the line, right? Like, yeah. oh, Especially given all the other... Uh, atrocities yeah right? <laughs> a, a lie doesn't even come close unless that lie yeah. is one of the things that led to some of those atrocities but in most right. cases it's, it's not it's just a it's another raindrop in the storm here right does this barrel of wine they're going to share with my whole household have poison in it no <laughs> no that's that's a bad lie that's <laughs> and there is a poison barrel of wine later in the story too i like that good example good said sean so the Lord Oris and hostages situation does have a resolution the following year in 7 AC. And still things probably haven't kicked into full second phase of the war yet. I still I feel like we're still in the interim where things are picking up, but there still hasn't been a second army sent down. There never will be. The dragons haven't returned yet. We haven't seen like the assassinations really kick into gear yet. So I feel like this is still part of that inactivity where people are preparing they're thinking about what might come next but people aren't actually actively stabbing each other to death in Dorne or otherwise fighting so the ransom happens Lord Ori's and his other knights some of whom were the ones who were important enough to leave alive are ransomed by Lord Will the widow lover and we get an idea maybe why it took so long the ransom was huge. It's, it's a casually dropped number. Their weight in gold. That's a staggering sum. How much is, I'm about 160 pounds, 160 pounds of gold. If I'm a knight, I weigh more than that probably because I've been training in, 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 in armor my whole life. I probably have way more muscle. I'm probably like 180 or maybe 190. And there's certainly people larger than me, the 200 pounders. I'm not a very big man. A lot of these guys would be big. Ori's himself is a huge man, most likely like a 240 pounder or something like that. Six foot four or something big like that. And this is where it's kind of funny. Uh, the way you can game things like this. The not funny part is that after the ransom was agreed to, the wills chopped their hands off so that they could never raise swords against Dorn again, which is like, ouch, but you kind of get it. Like these were invaders. And if you let them go, they're definitely going to come back. They are going to come. Like it's a, it's like a guarantee that most of these warriors, including Ori's would come back to fight in Dorn if they weren't. So it's kind of, it's definitely a violation of the implied code of conduct when dealing with hostages, but I kind of get it, you know? Uh, not that I approve, but I, I'm like, 
I don't know. I, I, it's hard to like say it's, it's hardcore, right? It may be immoral, but it makes sense. Yeah. It's, like, you know, it's not just it's cruelty for cruelty's sake. It's not just, oh, we want to, we're going to get one over on these ancient enemies of ours. Like, ha, those stupid Stormlanders, we show them, you know. They're going to give us five more pounds of gold than they should have. Yeah. Yeah. They weighed them and then cut their <laughs> hands. might be too much. I don't know if you're yeah, here. How much is your hand? Does it have its gauntlet on when you cut it? Yeah. <laughs> That's and that's how this gets gained. We saw Roose Bolton game that. Like Lord Walder Frey's like, you can now I'll give you a bride price in silver. She's like, well, I'll take your largest daughter. Then <laughs> I'll choose <laughs> Fat Walda. So we're like the the wills like feeding the prisoners extra food. Like, why are they giving us so much food? Like, send that if that happens, they might figure that out. They're like, oh my, you know what? I figured it out. Yo, they're gonna weigh us and give us ransom in mm-hmm. the in there. That's why they're fattening us up. It's our weight in gold or silver or something. So then they're like, what are they doing? Like push-ups when the guards aren't watching to like lose that weight. Like I'm going to enjoy this food, but I'm going to lose those calories. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make the crown pay that much for my ransom. One-handed push-ups. Yes. Like, yeah, one- <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. That's dark. <laughs> and remember house will already has this reputation. This is the same house that took Prince Aemon, the dragon knight captive and hung him over a cage, over a pit of vipers, Baylor, the blessed going to rescue him and getting bitten and them laughing about it and all that. This is the same house. <laughs> they have a reputation. Of course, that hasn't happened yet this, in this timeline, but it's gonna. And you know that when that does happen with Prince Aemon and Baylor of the Blessed, they're remembering this. The, the will, Lord Will, the widow lover, is still known. He's still infamous in parts for an event that we're going to get to later here in the timeline. So yeah, they remember. They remember. You know, another piece of this that I wonder about is delivering that gold. Think what effort that would have been. Mm. Like gathering it and then like protecting it along the way. You would have needed it's a, a good huge point. force. It's a good point. Right? Like there's a lot of motivation for someone to attack that convoy. So. Yeah, I like the loot train battle in a Game of Thrones TV show with uh, of course no dragons would have been attacking that cuz the dragons would be the ones collecting it. But still, you're right. That's a massive amount of gold going a long distance. Yeah. I wonder if they use dragons to escort it. I, I didn't even think of that. Ooh, now, maybe, I, yeah. That was a, uh, maybe. That's, that's, that's a low pride endeavor for a dragon rider, but it might be <laughs> what was necessary. <laughs> It'd be a dangerous handoff, too, especially if the dragons did fall. Like, here's the gold, here's the prisoners. Okay, now burn up all the people that have the gold. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. That might have been part of the condition. Like, no dragons in sight. We're not handing them over. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, which might might they might be wary of. Well, why are they doing that? Is that are they going to do a surprise attack? Like, what? Well, yeah, like I wouldn't trust mm-hmm. the will. And if I was the will, I wouldn't trust the Targaryens. So yeah, yeah. you just got this this lack of trust on both sides, and you can understand why. By the way, the the will sigil is the uh, the black adder, a uh, black adder biting a foot, coiled around a foot, and it's, might just be a reference to Black Adder, the Rowan Atkinson show, the medieval uh, historical comedy. But uh, Nina points out it might also be a little bit of a, a biblical thing. It's also not really that comedic, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this isn't funny. Black Weird Adder's funny. reference to make George. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, by the way, isn't that hilarious? All those <laughs> hands chopped off and poisonings and snakes and yeah. Ha! <laughs> it's hilarious. Reminds me of that comedy. <laughs> <laughs> so did this escalate things or was it just so escalated that it just... Like, you can't escalate any more than things already were. I would say it probably did because you can escalate things more, as we're going to see, because things do escalate more. Like, this is... This is bad, but maybe it gets worse. this didn't, but it did get escalated. Yeah, yeah, maybe this. Yeah, Nina says, well, it certainly didn't help de-escalate. Yes, that's that's clear. Uh, there was definitely anger in the Stormlands, probably anger at the Red Keep, 
And Ori's Brathian himself was permanently pissed. I mean, I understandably, they cri- crippled him. Like, that's his, his, a lot of his pr- identity was wrapped up in his sword arm and they took it. So, the, the prisoner exchange for money itself might have de escalated things, but when you get the prisoners and their hands are removed, that's, that's the thing that would, yeah. if anything, escalate them. It wasn't a surprise to them when they got the prison. Like, they would have prepped, they would have told them before the transfer, right? No, um, I don't they think did so. It? Oh, okay. They just I found out when so. they got him. It says it was revealed, yeah, the oh, way it's written, okay. it sounds like they didn't know that was coming. This might be a a bit of a uh, nod or an insult or a needling of the Stormlanders because of Argal- uh, what Argalak did to Aegon's envoy when he was oh, like, hey, yeah. you know... Uh, marry my daughter, you know, no, I'll marry, you can marry my, marry Oris himself, the man whose hand was cut off, right? And it's like, well, that's what you did. <laughs> that's what, uh, the Stormlanders did to, uh, to Aegon. So it's kind of like, yep, a little bit of, it's not payback, but it's, you know, more of the same. So that's quite a thing. Yeah. And Oris became obsessed with revenge and quit as hand. Like he's basically not long after getting back or maybe immediately, he may have already decided to quit when he was maimed before the, the, he returned to King's land. He may have already decided to quit, but, or maybe he'd been pondering it or something like that. Either way, he was gone out of the picture. Uh, at least for now, he's not, his career isn't over. We will be returning to him, but he is no longer a participant in the first Dornish war. Cutting the hands off reminds me of something else that happened under the democracy of Athens. In, uh, in the time of the Peloponnesian War, or bef- just around that era, they defeated the island nation of Gina. And the quote is, so that he might forever after be disabled from holding a spear, yet might handle an oar. They didn't cut their hands off, they cut their thumb off. Their thumbs off. He could still pull an oar. Because mm-hmm. Gina was an island nation that was sometimes under the auspices of, of Athens. They were sometimes like a subject. And at this point, they were at war, and yeah, so... Well, you can still do trade and have have a living, but you're not going to fight us with the with that hand. So it was kind of yeah, it's kind of a similar vibe. Uh, something that really happened. I guess that would have been around the year like four thirty, four twenty BC, something like that. The replacement for uh, Lord Oris was Lord Edmund Tully. He's a new hand of the king. He was he's the paramount Lord Paramount of the Trident, the same guy who was the first to turn on Heron the Black in favor of Aegon. So Aegon again rewards him for his service. Apparently it had been going well, and the man ascended to even higher honors. So yeah, whether the Widow Lover made things worse or not, Aegon's response was certainly also not like a de-escalation. It was just more and more. He went and burned everything the Wills owned that he could get his dragon flame on. But that was... Not super effective. Like, yes, he gave the Harrenhal treatment to their watchtowers and their castle and farms and fields and stuff, but they hid in their caves with their big piles of gold. (laughs) How do you sleep at night? On top of a huge pile of money. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about the surrounded by many beautiful ladies part, but maybe that part too. So, yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And, And so we're in the year 7 AC now. And there's an interesting factor to consider. As I said, Oris may have been the de facto heir. Uh, there's no indication he would have ever superseded a dragon rider. But now we have a son born to, to Rhaenys and Aegon. And we're not sure when this child was born. The child could have easily been born after the ransom. But the pregnancy, we've got nine months of pregnancy. That gets noticed at some point. So it's probably she was probably pregnant before the ransom. 
was finished, which is an interesting spot to be in. They're like, they know a kid's coming. They don't know the gender, but it's an heir. Even if it's a girl, it's an heir because it's a child of the, of the princess or the queens and, and the king, or one queen and the king. So we always have to consider that when a child is born. Don't forget that there would have been months of a child's coming. We know a child is coming. There's a pregnancy. This is happening. Rainey's was still, was probably flying Meraxes and burning castles while she was pregnant, which a little extra risk, but maybe not a whole lot extra risk. More than she might have thought, though, given what happens in a few years. So, but there was negativity about this kid. And you wonder if, like, Dornish agents were maybe pushing this angle a little bit, start a little turmoil, cause a little rumor in the, in the royal household. That could be to their benefit to cause a little uh, rift or to maybe any sort of scandal in the royal family might uh, uh, affect the war in a positive way for Dorn. The rumor being that Aenys was uh, maybe not Aegon's. Rhaenys was noted to surround herself with young, handsome men, and Aenys was weak and sickly and shy, which isn't much of a piece of evidence, but Aegon being so manly and strong that people took that as evidence or quote-unquote evidence. I'm using the finger quotes right now when I say evidence. <laughs> Regardless of the truth, the rumors were real. They real Those really happened, and that mattered. Apparently, it didn't go too far. And the tide started to turn and, and, as far as Aenys' uh, strength, his boldness of character, because the dragon Quicksilver was hatched, or maybe around this time, I'm guessing a little, little before, maybe in the year six or even five, but still referred to as a hatchling, so probably still pretty darn young. I don't know when a dragon ceases to be a hatchling. <laughs> I'm not sure what the timeline on dragon growth is. You know, like a kitten... Apparently a cat is no longer a kitten after one year. I don't know what that... I, I don't know that for pretty much any other species, <laughs> even dogs. Our cats, on the other hand, are still kittens to this day. <laughs> yes, 11 years later, <laughs> 10 years later, they are kittens. It's right. That's right. Kitten. You, you do call Koja kitten. I do. I do. One so, of them is a kitten to Aziz. Valerian is still a hatchling <laughs> to Aegon. <laughs> oh, look at the cute little... M murder bomber you know? <laughs> get the cute little nuclear bomber <laughs> it's tempting to see quicksilver as a spawn of Meraxes, since quicksilver is probably silver given the name <laughs> we don't actually know for sure it's a pretty safe guess and Meraxes is silver with golden eyes so yeah that's pretty cool we don't know where the timeline is for Annie's either do we we don't know like quite his age i'm just thinking about the idea it might be a hard rumor to battle for the three-year-old the the three year old is shy, yeah, and weak. Well, all three year olds are weak, and how do you define shy at age three? Like, yeah, some so. some little babies are like you know go towards the big animal, and some are just scared of everything. I don't know. There's some, yeah. but that, apparently that changed pretty quickly. Once Quicksilver bonded with Anis and vice versa, Anis apparently showed more baby versions of ba bravery, whatever <laughs> whatever that actually means. Using Sean's point there. And that also, for some reason, since the rumors of paternity were somewhat wrapped up in his sickliness and weakness, once his sickliness and weakness started to pass, that also tampered down the rumors of his, his parentage, which I've always found these rumors a little fascinating because there's also some maybe some rumors around Magor and Visenya, but there's definitely nothing certain here. But it would be interesting to find out that Aegon the Conqueror was sterile and he never actually had any children and <laughs> that both of these heirs were not of his body. But they are Targaryen. They definitely came from Rhaenys and Visenya. There's no, there's no uh, getting around that fact. <laughs> it's like, it's like 
the Tyrion Targaryen theory. Like, no matter who his father is, his mom's Joanna. <laughs> That's a Lannister, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Barring time travel. Barring time travel, <laughs> yes. The Tyrion time-traveling fetus theory aside. <laughs> we can't forget such luminary ideas in, <laughs> in our fandom. We'd be remiss to just dismiss that one out of hand. I mean, man. Time traveling feti are a real thing. <laughs> is that how you say plural of fetus? Feti? <laughs> I don't know. It is now. It is now. That's how we say it. <laughs> yes, feet. I'm gonna find more opportunities to use that word. Feti. <laughs> Sounds kind of it's very Roman. Yes, feti. <laughs> uh, the dra- note. So you notice that this this bonding with Quicksilver came after hatching, which reminds us that the dragon egg in the cradle tradition was not a thing yet. That came later, which is one of the reasons we can be pretty sure it wasn't a thing in Valyria either, unless it was a rediscovered tradition, a re, you know, something was re-implemented. But it doesn't seem to be, because it, it looks like it began with Reyna, as in firstborn of King Aenys and, well, Prince Aenys at the time, and Princess Alyssa, eventually Queen, King Aenys and Queen Alyssa. So their firstborn was the one that apparently started this. And gay Reyna. What's that? Gay Reyna. Gay Reyna. To be clear, <laughs> yes, gay Reyna. I just want to make it shorter for any of you who are like, wait, Reyna. which Reyna? Gay Reyna. Yeah, there's there's several Reynas. It is hard to keep track of. Not as many Reynas as there are Aegons, but there's less written about the Reynas, so we have to give them nicknames. They don't have numbers. Aegons all have numbers or nicknames. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe this is why her own father became stronger thanks to bonding with his dragon, right? Like, he, if the pr- closeness, if maybe, maybe there's a little magic involved in there, the egg in the cradle might start that process earlier. If it's magical, then who knows what's happening. Uh, an even more obvious association with eggs in cradles is Daenerys. <laughs> like, it wasn't her cradle, but those eggs were, like, speaking to her. She was, like, bonding with them in her dream. Talk about getting stronger. Those eggs were a crucial, like, item, a focal point for her growing into the character that she became later. The hatching was a big leap forward in that because it proved a lot that was going on in her head was actually quite real but she got strength from those eggs she would like when she felt weak she'd be like i want to hold one of those eggs you know and i feel like this is a a pretty strong clue to maybe what was happening on maybe a smaller scale maybe the vibes were there maybe it wasn't intense maybe they weren't having these like overwhelming dreams every night like Danny was, but they might have been having, you know, a little something something in there at night, you know, some feelings, some some visions, but milder types, you know. Regardless of that, going forward, things had changed without any military objectives being achieved by either side, right? We've got the royal house having at least one new dragon, or probably more. Like, that's not mentioned, but dragons are hatching. Quicksilver wasn't the only one to hatch. There's, there's The cannibal might exist by now. Vermithor might have hatched by now. Some of these other dragons, that matters. Like, that's just... Even as there aren't a lot of Targaryen children, there's more Targaryen dragons hatching, which, for whatever reason, had been at an ebb. For some reason, there weren't as many dragons, but now the royal house's hatchery was... More is going on. We don't know why. Maybe that's another topic for another day, but that just shows the growing strength of, of this new Iron Throne. More dragons... Is gonna these dragons will be ridden, you know, if if not by Aenys, then by more children that are coming, and that perhaps makes him a target. We haven't gotten to the stage of the war when the assassinations become common, but we're about to in the second half, and you got to think if you're willing to chop hands off, if you're willing to 
kill anyone that's coming for you, you're probably willing to, to kill the ones who will be doing that to you 30 years in the future, which is what will happen if you allow Anis to become an adult or from their perspective, that's actually not how Anis is going to operate, but they have no reason to believe otherwise. You know, something else just occurred to me. We haven't thought about this in a while, but this sort of new revelation that we have about this prophecy that Aegon knew about, that maybe that's part of why he didn't make adjustments in Dorne. He just knew they were going to win. He may have had some, you know, misinterpreted vision, but some vision that Dorne would be part of the Seven Kingdoms. And that he might have thought that he was going to do it and that what he was doing was working because he had this vision. He didn't realize how long it was going to be. The drags wouldn't be involved and so on. Mm -hmm. Right on. Over two months of drinking Magic Mind now, and I think I can give a little bit of personal experience that's slightly long term, at least approaching longer term, because that is one of the ideas is that it's some of the ingredients in Magic Mind don't work immediately. They need to build up within your system. There's a lot of other ingredients out there that work like that. A lot of other things for your mind, especially. So I think um, I'm noticing it, you know, more with two months in and um, I've got more energy. I was very productive this last week. Um, it's always a little bit of a struggle up and down for me. Sometimes I'm really productive. Sometimes I'm not. I'm trying to get a little more balance there. And so far this year, I feel like it's been better. And maybe that's partly attributed to Magic Mind. What about you, Sean? Well, I had a little break. I ran out and ordered more. But I will say, overall, I feel like I think I mentioned this before. I don't feel like I get as tired as quick at the gym. And I don't even know if that's like one of the perks that they advertised. Maybe it's a coincidence, but I, I, I still get sore the next day, but I don't feel like I get quite as worn out in the moment at the gym. So I think that's a positive. And um, I haven't been uh, tracking it scientifically, but anecdotally, I I must be drinking less caffeine because I just know I'm not throwing as much recycling. Away. I know as many like cans in the bin when I recycle. So I'm pretty sure I'm drinking less sodas. It's <laughs> a funny clue. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, I really appreciate that. That's an interesting way to, to track your, your soda uh, intake, but that seems to it seems to work. Like you would really notice that. I could I could I totally get that. They extended their January sale to February 10th. So if you're hearing this before February 10th, 2024, you can still gear up to crush your resolutions. One month for free is what you get if you subscribe for three months if you go to magicmind.com slash Jan Westeros. And if you enter the discount code Westeros. 20. That's an extra 20% off, which gets you to around 75% off. Again, that lasts till February 10th. That's magicmind.com slash Jan Westeros. If you happen to hear this after February 10th, you should still be able to get a significant deal off and the code Westeros 20 should still work. We highly encourage it. Either way, it's working for us. Additional productivity. Get on that magic mind. Dornish Dame says, we also think of the Wars of the Roses taking place from 1455 to 1485, but there were long periods in that time without any battles on one side or the other plotting in exile. Perfect example. Very perfect example. Yeah, it wasn't 30 years of armies and battles and sieges. There were long periods of other things like plotting in exile, whether uh, it's recouping your strength or petitioning other Kings around Europe to take up their cause. These things take time, travel, etc. I mean, just getting from place to place is slower in those times than it is now. They're not having phone calls. They got to send letters back and forth. Just that takes months, you know, just uh, everything is slower and they can't act and they can't be active in winter, etc., etc. Yeah, lots of things like that. Dornish Dame also says Quicksilver's role in making Anis appear stronger has an interesting parallel in Bran, apparently getting stronger during his coma when he could hear the wolves sing. 
That's a very good catch. I like that. Yeah, a lot of these sort of animal bonding with supernatural elements are written similarly to enjoy, at least in that regard. Like we have no indication that there's a communication bond between dragons and riders other than maybe some emotional flashes here back and forth, like maybe the same kind of things that a dog can interpret from their owner. Not like a skin changer where they're like seeing through each other's eyes. That's definitely a different level. But there are similarities. And this whole getting stronger thing, that's a, that's a good catch because yeah, Bran was getting stronger notably when he could hear the wolves singing and that may... Uh, it may be magical. It may just be like very human. Just the, the sound of the wolves is like brings him back to uh, to who he is. It helps draw him out of his coma and brings him back to the real world. For example, I don't know if this anecdote is true, but I just happened to see it this morning. The guy who was the original voice of Bugs Bunny once slipped into a coma, and the doctor actually got him out of the coma in part by saying "What's up, Doc?" to him, and he would lapse into his Bugs Bunny voice. In a coma, and that helped bring him out of it. <laughs> the brain is weird, y'all, and we don't understand it very well. <laughs> so that stuff applies even to fictional brains. If you have an author who uh, writes authentically, and George does in most ways. Austin Flowers also writes 160 pounds of gold is $4 million in today's market. That's a lot of money, but I don't know if we should go by today's market. It's just a, it's a good, like way to find our bearing i think it's more than that i someone can do the math but i think an ounce of gold right now is like two thousand dollars which means a pound of gold is sixteen thirty thousand dollars and thirty thousand times a hundred six i don't know if i'm doing that math right but i think it's like a billion i think it's like a billion. anyway well it's a lot of money and the value of gold is different in westeros anyway but yeah it's a it's a huge amount (laughs) so and and george's that's not one of george's strengths is, is consistency with currency value so uh we would probably not get to a super strong answer if we went any deeper and i'm not sure we could anyway let's move to the year 8 ac we're told 8 ac was a very dry season very dry year and that aligns with what we've been saying about the winters because in case you didn't know the driest season is winter winter is dry drier in dorn Ooh. (laughs) that's bad it's bad to be drier in dorn but the enemy armies weren't there the dornish kind of know how to handle that i guess and it wasn't just like that in dorn quote in 8 ac a very dry year dornish raiders crossed the sea of dorn on ships provided by a pirate king from the stepstones attacking half a dozen towns and villages along the south shore of cape wrath and setting fires that spread through half the rainwood. Fire for fire, Princess Miria is reported to have said. This was not something the Targaryens would allow to go unanswered. Kind of a ridiculous thing to say, right? Like, that last sentence, it's like, unanswered? This is, like, year four of this war now, or year three? Like, you're attacking each other. I mean, that's what you do in a war unanswered. I mean, yeah, oh, we'll just let that one go. Well, of course, like, you're already in a war. I mean. <laughs> like, this was an answer to something the Targaryens did yeah. in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, what, are there some other things that they did let go unanswered? Yeah. Like, what exactly <laughs> is the question here? If this needs to go unanswered, like, what is the question here? I guess this is being written, I don't know, the, from the perspective of the Targaryens. It's very pro-Targaryens, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah so... <laughs> But, and it's, I, I, so I say it's silly, but it's also authentic. Like, this is often how history is written. It's like, well, of course the Targaryens would have an answer to that. Well, yeah, of, 
they started it. I mean, I, I just think it's funny to, to act like provocations even really matter at this point. Like, oh, you provoked us. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think they're the provocations. We've, we're past the provocations point here. <laughs> we're, we're well into it, you know? You know, I wonder, again, it's something we don't quite know, but maybe this is something that happened after an extended truce. Right? Okay, Maybe yeah. enough time had passed without something significant happening that this is like, all right, that's over. We're back at it. You know? Yeah. And it's and it is an escalation in the sense that, oh, you're going to you're going to blow up and torch all our villages and castles and fields. Well, we can do that to you, too. That's kind of why I call this episode Doran Strikes Back, because they accomplish quite a bit considering how much devastation they face. They are able to attack Westeros, they're able to assassinate people, and they're able to not give up. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about all the backs they were hitting. (laughs) They strike so many backs. I've been waiting for that to come up. Yeah, Sir Mix-a-Lot has got back and they strike (laughs) it. You know, they brought Sir Mix-a-Lot into this war and and Darth Vader. (laughs) Yeah, this war is getting, I told y'all, this war gets crazy. (laughs) We got Darth Vader and... <laughs> and uh, Sir Mix a lot. <laughs> I wanted to bring up something about the the weather, about winter, yeah. you know, and how it would affect water, uh, among other things. Even if it wasn't like a, a freezing cold winter in Dorne, but one effect, you know, because sometimes you only need a few degrees to change to get above or below freezing temperatures, right? Yeah. And maybe in the middle of the 90 degree Dornish desert, it doesn't matter. But here in Denver and a lot of the, the West, the water comes from snowmelt in the mountains that flows down rivers into reservoirs and such. And so if in the mountains it stays winter enough for the snow to not melt, that means water is drying up everywhere else. Which is why it's dry. Yeah, you're right. That's part of why it makes it dry. It's not that the water isn't there. It's that it's frozen (laughs) a lot. Well, in some cases, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so it's probably still miserably hot in the desert, but there's less water in the wells or in the streams that there would be from the melting in the mountains. Yeah. And so it's, you're still kind of getting hit by the, the heat of the desert, but the effects of the weather. Yeah. And something, again, the Dornish would be much more aware and prepared for than the any kind of attempted invading armies. Which is why they probably felt reasonably confident that armies might not march on them again. They, they were probably also confident that the dragons would return and they'd be right about that. I mean, obviously, Valerian had already returned to torch the wills lands after the the cutting off of the hands but they all surely knew more dragons were coming as long as this war continued and the big change here too is Aegon is no longer the guy who can claim to just be taking on leaders and sort of the peasantry are mostly being left alone this war has escalated to the point where lots of villages are getting burned and now we've got villages in his king his portion of the kingdom getting burned too as retaliation so lots of just Completely innocent people getting killed, people who aren't combatants. Like, you could argue that certain people forced to fight in the army shouldn't have been. But these people aren't even lifting a spear. These are just completely innocent individuals and people who probably already hate Dornishmen because they've been raided and like their families have been raided by the Dornish in the past. But also, it's Pirate King. Uh, the sh- these ships came from some Pirate King. This is a very underrated little aspect here. Like, the Dornish have got allies and they're not explicitly mentioned as such, but. A pirate king from the Stepstones. We've all heard about pirate kings from the Stepstones. This has happened a lot of different times. Where did the money come from? Well, my theory is pretty straightforward. It came from those ransoms, yeah. <laughs> right? Like they got yeah. a big pile of money and they surely have other money too. But that is a very big, <laughs> big, obvious, uh, potentially uh, potential source for that cash. 
that's another thing I wonder about the details and the story behind. Were they asking for that ransom because they knew they needed the money to hire pirates? Or once they got the ransom, they're like, oh, now we can hire pirates. Or maybe the pirates are like, hey, those Dornish just got a big ransom. Maybe we can go offer our services. Like, what? What? I like that last idea. Like, like, you know, they're, they're flush now. It will help. And the, yeah. and the target. And like, if you're a pirate king, you're anti Targaryen, probably. You don't like dragons. You don't want them coming for you either. You're the friend, enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. The Century of Blood, let's forget, let's not remember, let's not forget Century of Blood isn't that far in the past at this point. And it's not like there's some arbitrary end to the Century of Blood. Like, oh, it's been a hundred years. Well, that's a century. It's over now. Now it's the Century of Water. I don't know. Century of <laughs> Fire, Blood and Fire. There you go. Yeah, that's another thing. It would have taken perspective of time to look back and realize, oh, that was a hundred years of terribleness. Yeah. So, whether it's 98 years or 107 years, it'll just be called a century as more time passes. Yeah, and because there's no definitive beginning in it. Well, there is a definitive beginning, the doom, but there's no definitive ending. <laughs> and, and the point being, the effects of the doom, even 100 years later, are still being felt. They're still burgeoning kingdoms. The power vacuum is still being filled. It was a big, big, big power vacuum to fill the fall of Valyria, and it happened so suddenly. So lots of leaders and and governments are still establishing themselves even 100 years later there's all this turmoil and tumult and chaos that takes a while to that's why it was a whole century so yeah it isn't just everything isn't just all nice and clean and, and organized now so lots of people probably didn't want didn't like this new situation of the iron throne like ugh, these targaryens like we just got done with dragon lords and now there's a whole new royal family on a much larger landmass. Look ahead. Think ahead if you're an SOC person. You're like, what's that going to look like in 40 years? Are there going to be 20 drag? Well, yeah, that's kind of, that is kind of what happened. There's going to be, it maybe, it maybe took a little longer than that, but that is eventually what, the, what it looked like. A, a very powerful royal family with a ton of dragons that could theoretically be a threat to people in Essos, especially the, the free cities. The ones who were ruled by Valyria before, <laughs> you know, they know what that's all about. The Valentines tried to conquer them right during the century of blood and the volunteers didn't have dragons and part of the reason the volunteers lost was Aegon attacked them <laughs> <laughs> so they're like yeah all these things are like kind of scary like we don't want to so you can see why a pirate king or several would want to help the dornish in this struggle like yeah we don't want the targaryens to get more powerful we don't want them having all of westeros we don't want them coming for us either, but better to help our enemies deal with them rather than face them, you know, head on ourselves. So, yeah, this raiding, it would have been really brutal. It would have been really nasty setting fires. There would have been all sorts of assaults and depravities and atrocities. And in some ways, it would have been worse than just straight up dragon fire because you don't have like, well, when people are involved in raids, you have things like sexual assault and, and much more like personal levels of violence. If you can hide from the dragon flame, you'll make it. But... It's when there's like a hundred dudes running around trying to grab you and do awful things. It's a different sort of different sort of horror. I think I'd rather face the dragon. Uh, actually, I'd definitely rather face the dragon. If I was a woman, it wouldn't even it, it wouldn't even be close. Yeah, I was gonna say that, uh, and we were talking about how the, the it's so horrible. What's coming up? And like, well, what happened already was horrible too. Yeah, but it is a little bit more. I don't know, easier to swallow when a bunch of people in the army get killed. Yeah. Right. Because, well, they're in the army. What do you think was going to happen now? Maybe they didn't have a choice about being in the army. It's still sad. The families that were left behind and everything. But as you said, that now we're targeting just innocent people who aren't who didn't have anything to do with this choice to go to war, don't have any control over or resources for their defenses or ability to affect it. They're just 
going about their lives yeah. and suddenly being attacked and raped and murdered and terrorized. It's not even a military target. Do. Like this isn't, this doesn't right. help the mm-hmm. war at all. It only makes people matter. It only is like, we got them. It makes them feel better about like, we got one, yeah. you know, we did something to them after what they did to us. It, yeah. It's not military help. It doesn't do any good in terms of the war. So like as much as I'm, I tend to side with Dorn cause they're the, the ones being invaded. I don't, this is not good. This is not justified. Nina wonders if this one of these towns, one of these mini towns that was destroyed or raided was the Weeping Town. The Weeping Town becomes famous when Daron the First is assassinated and his body lies in state there for a few days and it acquires that name. But it didn't have a name at the time. Like, well, it probably did to the locals, but not a name that would show up on maps or anything. Very rare is a small a place like that become famous and it, it, it did for a very specific reason, you know, 150-ish years later. And, and this, this idea of pirate kings, if this pirate king is just casually mentioned as helping the Dornish, well, what, did, what other allies did they have? Did they get, like, maybe some secret aid? Like, maybe the, the Volantines or the Lyseni sent them some gold on the sly. Like, well, we can't send you any soldiers. We don't want the, the Targaryens to know. But we do want y'all to win. So we'll send you secret supply. We'll send you some shipments or whatever. But even that eventually would be difficult to do. Because, like, where are, you, where are those boats going to land? How are you literally how... Do you ship goods to rebels hiding in deep desert caves? Like, how do you how do you supply them that assistance in the first place? So this is one of the logistical issues with being a guerrilla force is even your allies don't know where you are to give you stuff. <laughs> like, it's like, yikes, like you're so well hidden that even your friends don't know where you are. And of course, the Pirates of the Stepstones at this point, who knows how powerful they were? They might have been quite powerful. It's not something mentioned a lot. They weren't a big part of what was going on in Westeros because, well, they don't want to mess with the dragons. They don't want to, <laughs> like ships, as we've said many times, ships don't do so well. Ships are even more vulnerable than people when it comes to dragons. So this was the start, though. This, this counter-invasion uh, of sorts, even though it was mostly a raid, is escalated the following year. Let's go to the year 9 AC, another big, big year, a very eventful. Dornish counter-invasions take a new form. Rather than raiding, we got full-blown armies. Lord Fowler leads an army of, out of Skyreach and takes Nightsong. Joffrey Dane, Sir Joffrey Dane leads an army through secret passes in the Red Mountains to emerge near, the, near Old Town and starts ravaging the territory there. Sean, does this tell you that it's no longer winter? Possibly. Yeah, yeah I guess it might. The, the fact that they've gotten the resources together to mobilize an army and attack with it, that a, a, a harvest may have come. You know? Yeah, yeah. Now, still, I want to say not necessarily because that was a lot of money for that ransom. That might have given enough money to just buy food from elsewhere to yeah. maybe even uh, hire mercenaries or buy whatever equipment and ships and everything else. So. Yeah, it's, we don't know that the Will would have shared that windfall with his fellow lords, but it would make sense for him to do that if, he's, if it would make such a difference in the war. Like, what good is a pile of gold to the war effort? You need to be spending that. You know, yeah, like he's not this, can't feed your people gold. Yeah. You can't equip your soldiers with gold. He can't go out and use it. He's not going to go partying like he's a he's a wanted <laughs> yeah. man, basically. <laughs> not that he even is interested in that necessarily. But so, yeah, that's what's money for the war. And yeah, it's entirely possible he spread it around. It's entirely possible he funded some of these other efforts or helped at least. Especially given the nature of the Dornish. Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? camaraderie you know they're all in this together yep. like it, it doesn't seem like any peoples or regions are like we're out this is too much they all keep being on board so. yes 
Now, uh, the Lord Edmund Tully, we said he had become hand in AC7 after the resignation of Lord Orries. Well, he didn't last very long. His wife died in childbirth, and he, he resigned his, his position. Now, I wonder, reading between the lines here, was this an excuse? Was he just like, the war is escalating? I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Atrocities are being committed. This is no longer an honorable situation. He doesn't want to say that to the king's face. So he's just like, my wife died. I got to go. You know, of course, it's entirely possible that his wife's death legitimately shattered him. That's entirely possible. Uh, you know, that's entirely possible. And of course, obviously, her life was is the one that was truly shattered by her death. But he may have truly like you never know what these political marriages like was she was he were they actually in love? Who knows? We don't know much about Edmund. We don't even know Lady Tully's name. So who knows which is true, but it would be. A very good excuse if he wanted to leave, if he wanted to bail on his position because of the way things were going, is a very good excuse. All the assassinations that started happening are going to, it's going to start to pick up soon if it may be already dead. He might not want to be in that particular crosshair. He's like, yeah, I'm a target. I'm the hand of the king. Look what happened to the last one. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be around for that. But this is the man who turned on hair in the black. That was pretty brave. So I'm not sure we can pin him as someone that's going to run away uh, at the barest threat of assassination. So there's a lot of unknowns here. Which is a, goes to show there's a lot of interesting possibilities here. This character, if he was ever fleshed out more, well, these are the kind of decisions that George or whatever writers would have to make. And they've got a lot to work with. And again, there might be a parallel uh, to Ned Stark. Like, maybe mm. he's brave enough to face assassination, but he might realize his family's in danger, right? His loved ones might get assassinated. Like, I'm out. Yeah. yeah. So that's a pretty big deal. Now, another possibility is we, we have to keep in, in mind here is the timing. A lot of times we were told several things happen in this year, but we don't know in what order they happen. And that really, really matters. For example, when was Aenys born? If Aenys was born before the ransom of Lord Orys or after, it might affect how much they were willing to pay, right? If they knew they had a boy, they're like, all right, well, we can maybe we don't pay quite as much, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> or if the kid is, you know, they had less negotiating leverage. Well, we don't need Orys anymore. We got this. Prince Aenys now, like, you know, that, that's got that takes 20% off the top right there, you know, but mm, if he hadn't been born yet, who knows, you know? And it does seem like a cold calculation, but the fact is someone's got to make that calculation. Like someone has to decide how much do we have? How much can we afford? What yeah. value do we get from him? You know, some people maybe are purely working off emotion, but someone on there is crunching some numbers, you know? That's what actuaries do, right? They put the value, like, someone's got to calculate what life insurance is worth. Someone's got to calculate, like, how much these premiums cost, and that, that math has to be crunched by somebody, yeah. A similar kind of thing here in a, in a much different auspices, much different scenario, but you're still calculating the value of a life, which is awkward, to say the least, but has to be done sometimes. And, yeah, and there's also the factor of, of what, I, what I was building up to, rather, is the death of Rainey's. If... Lord Tully resigned before the death of Rhaenys. That's one thing. But if he resigned after, well, then that's, that's very telling because he's like, oh, boy, I can tell this is going to get so much worse. This, the escalations are going to escalate. Even the, escal even the worst escalations will be escalated <laughs> upon once that happens. So that's where I think the big unknown is. What happened first? Let's discuss. The following year was perhaps marked by perhaps the most significant deaths of the war. And though we're not sure what part of the year it happened in, it's, it's so important that we'll start with it. So I think this happened after Lord Tully's resignation, because it seems to be that happened in year nine and this happened in the year 10. But these things are all kind of loose. And of course, I'm referring to what happened over the deep sands, the death of Rhaenys. Quote, 
The Targaryen dragons, bred and trained to battle, had flown through storms of spears and arrows on many occasions and suffered little harm. The scales of a full-grown dragon were harder than steel, and even those arrows that struck home seldom penetrated enough to do more than enrage the great beasts. But as Meraxes banked above the hellhold, a defender atop the castle's highest tower triggered a scorpion, and a yard-long iron bolt caught the queen's dragon in the right eye. Meraxes did not die at once, but came crashing to earth in mortal agony, destroying the tower and a large section of the Hellholt's curtain wall in her death throes. Whether Rhaenys Targaryen outlived her dragon remains a matter of dispute. We will discuss whether or not she lived in the next episode when we're discussing the piece and the letter, because those things all very much wrap together. But just imagine, this is one of those moments, like we had last episode, where I really want to try to imagine what it was like, as uncomfortable as it is, because it's, it's like so violent, and, but it's also just so epic and crazy. I want to put, uh, put yourself in both Rhaenys' place, where you're just super confident this has never not worked, and all of a sudden, oh my god. And it's just over in a few seconds, probably, unless she lived, which, again, we'll discuss that later. As for the defenders, though, like... Which person, and it might have been a woman, I say person, because at this stage of the war, like, first of all, if you're talking about soldiers in Westeros, yeah, it's usually a safe assumption that it's a man. But in Dorne, you can't be as sure. And in a war that's lasted this long, you can be even less sure. Like, the more men are killed in war, the more women are pressed into battle. Like, look at Bear Island. The women are like, it's a normal thing for them to fight there because it's such a normal thing for them to have to fight. They're pressed into combat because the needs are, the need is that great, right? I could totally assume that here especially for something that maybe doesn't require great strength. Like you've got to lay a lever. You're pulling a lever on the scorpion bolt. That doesn't necessarily require some massive upper body strength. All it requires is that you're not like going to panic. And if you're, you know, plenty of people can handle that. Plenty of women can handle that, right? And this, we don't know who this person was. Maybe that's a good thing for them because they would have been targeted for retaliation. Uh, maybe they died in the crash of the dragon. Maybe like the wall, maybe the dragon hit the near where the bolt came from and and the person was killed in the fall so we have no idea who this person was this this person is probably semi-legendary uh but anonymous perhaps to save their life <laughs> and their family's lives yeah. the way this is going yeah. good point good point yeah so yeah the definitely guilt by association is a thing guilt in, in quotes here so it's a huge deal it isn't just the death of Meraxes, who is a powerful weapon for the targaryen it isn't just the death of rainies who's one of the queens, and the mother of the only heir right now. This shoots down, literally, the notion that these dragons are invincible, that they're invulnerable. Dorn, again, embarrassed to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms doing something, succeeding in something where the, all else had failed. They didn't even come close to stopping the dragons in the earlier part of the conquest. But now we have not just stopping one, killing one, taking out their rider, dead or not, she's at least captured. So that's a huge deal. Like, think, again, I use Greek history as an example. The Spartans and their unbeatable infantry. No one could beat, they were, everyone was afraid of them because it had been like a hundred years since they had been beaten in a land battle. And when they finally were beaten in a land battle, it was like everyone realized that, oh, the mystique was gone. It's like, oh, actually they can be beaten. Similar thing here. It's like, actually the dragons can be beaten. It just goes to show we held out. We were brave. We didn't give up. We got a win. We got a big win. That, it's just a massive blow to the Targaryens because they think, oh, we're eventually we're going to wear them down. 
Doesn't look like it now, does it? Like, well, maybe they're going to wear you down, right? If they can take out a dragon. Not only are you less able to wear them down because you have one less dragon, but now their morale is improved and your morale is hurt on so many levels. Yeah. And now it becomes personal too, right? Which it, it already should have been. It was already personal in the first place to so many, so many people, but now it's personal to the Targaryens. I was going to say too, on that note, uh, thinking about the idea of women being pressed into battle, some of them might have wanted to get into battle to avenge their husbands and their sons and everyone that had been killed. They've so. been ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this, maybe the person that shot down Meraxes was one such person. It's like, it's, it's a guarantee that the person who shot down Meraxes knew people had lost friends and family in the war. Like, how could they not? Like, the whole country mm -hmm. was years into this conflict and the dragons had come several times. So, really interesting, really big, really huge moment. Uh, a big win for the Dornish. And Nina wonders whether they left the wall kind of half destroyed as a monument to that. The bones are still there. The sun-bleached bones of Meraxes are still there. That, talk about a symbol. The skull isn't. The skull will be returned. We know that. Like, we see the skull in the, in the basement. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised no one ever, like, came in and, like, let me just take a little a little bit of this bone and make myself a weapon. Like, I'm surprised it hasn't been harvested at Maybe all. a little bit of that has Maybe happened. Maybe a little bit. You know, maybe, like, a few people might vertebra just be, <laughs> here yeah, and there. People might be, like, respectful, honorable, and not and be, know that they'll be sorely punished if they're caught or something yeah, like that. Like, like but I could also see... Someone, an Uller, or someone at the hellhole, be like, "This is the my Lord right. Himself. I am the Lord. I want a cool weapon. Yeah. Let's do this." Like, I could see that. I, I totally agree. I, I headcanon now. The 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 Lord Uller has the hilt of his sword is made from dragon bone. Yeah, I'm like, just say, why would you not do that? I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, I can't imagine having that much. Like, that's a lot. A huge skeleton. That's a lot. Gigantic. Yeah, Miraculous was huge. I can think of one potential why you might not. It might get associated with some sort of curse or something uh, like that. Uh, like, maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. But, but I still think it would take time for that curse to come about. So at yeah. first, I can imagine scavengers of those in power did get some pieces of it for a trophy or a tool or whatever. But I can imagine eventually they realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, cut this out. We want this to stand as a monument. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that, which is which is what Nina was getting at with maybe leaving the wall in a place or just building a new wall around it and just leaving the destroyed section and still having it closed off elsewhere. Like, Do you think there's yeah. a difference in any of the parts of the bone of a dragon in terms of efficacy? Maybe like I don't know how you like turn a giant rib cage bone into a handle, you know, like that's mm. such a huge thing, you know, like I could see the rib cage still being there, but maybe like bits of the tail or little finger bone, yeah, little, claw, yeah. little digits of little knuckles, things like that could be used. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know very I little about bones like stone or something. I bet yeah. I bet one rib could be many handles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you got to somehow break it apart, you know, with Valyrian steel, <laughs> diamond, <laughs> diamond chisel away those bones. Yeah. Yep. Factor meals. Factors, delicious, ready to eat meals, make eating chef crafted meals better every day. Very easy. In two minutes, you can have your food prepared. Uh, you can fuel up fast with restaurant quality meals, much healthier than fast food and actually cheaper and actually faster faster than fast food and healthier. What can be better than that? There's no prepping, cooking or cleanup needed. And it isn't just a batch of dinners. You got snacks, you got smoothies, you got breakfast food, you've got midday meals. You've got options and you customize it based on your eating habits. You aren't fitting yourself to a meal plan. The meal plan is fitting itself to you. 
It's meant to work around your schedule. That's really what Factor's goal is. And so you can get as much or as little as you need, as low as six meals per week, as high as 18 meals per week. You can very easily pause or reschedule deliveries. The name of the game is flexibility. The name of the game is speed, but also health. We're not sacrificing any nutrition by making things faster and quicker and more efficient. Head to factormeals.com slash Westeros50 and use the code Westeros50 to get 50% off. That's code Westeros50, factormeals.com slash Westeros50 to get 50% off, get started today, eat healthier, save money. It's all great. So the next section here in our episode is called The Dragon's Roth, and it begins with a quote. The next two years were the years of the dragon's wrath. Every castle in Doran was burned thrice over, as Beleriand and Vagar returned time and time again. The sands around the hellhold were fused into glass in places, so hot was Beleriand's fiery breath. The Dornish lords were forced into hiding, but even that did not buy them safety. Lord Fowler, Lord Vaith, Lady Tolland, and four successive lords of the Hellholt were murdered, one after the other, for the Iron Throne had offered a lord's ransom in gold for the head of any Dornish lord. Only two of the killers lived to collect their rewards, however, and the Dornish men took their reprisals, repaying blood with blood. Lord Connington of Griffin's Roost was killed whilst hunting, Lord Mertens of Mistwood poisoned with his whole household by a cask of Dornish wine, Lord Fell smothered in a brothel in King's Landing. Smothered by what? <laughs> <laughs> a pillow? I don't know. No. He got really drunk and then they... <laughs> no, I, I like to think it's more pleasant. Yes, he, he was smothered by boobies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For episode after episode, I've been hammering away at the way Aegon presents himself, like his persona, his like, I dominate. I meet you head on. I win. There's no doubt who's stronger. Straightforward victories is the name of the game for him. No question about cleverness, no cunning, just who's the strongest without leaving doubt. But here, that's gone. Like burning castles for no purpose. It was is one thing that was a bit of an escalation, but now you're just out here murdering people, assassinations. This is completely different. This is not the Aegon that arguably did a good thing by uniting the Seven Kingdoms. That man killed a lot of people, but you could at least argue that he prevented a lot of death in the future because constant war was a thing between all these kingdoms. He stopped King Heron. He stopped some of these other guys who would constantly fight each other. Although it's a Eth ethically questionable to start wars to save lives in the future, you can make that argument here that he saved lives in the long run. You cannot make that argument about how he handled Dorne. This is just evil, I think. I don't think you can say good things about this. He's not doing it. There's no. It's really hard to make the greater good argument here. There, the argument does exist, even if it's a little sketchy for the rest of the Seven Kingdoms, and even if you throw in the prophecy of saving the Seven Kingdoms from the others in the future, I don't think this is, you still can't really justify that. It's a pretty this. cool, sick move as a re revenge, though. <laughs> like, as far as these things go, like, your your love, your wife, and her dragon are killed or kept held hostage, you know, whatever. Yeah. But regardless, you're big mad, 
and you want to show your your roads, I I'm I I it's effective to just be it like is. I have lots of money. This is what you get when I'm actually mad at you. What you faced before was me trying to just like bring you into the realm. I don't know. Like I agree with you. It's evil and all that. But like he was mad. He he's was true. really. He's like, mad. oh, I was holding back before. He's yeah. like, this is what I can now. Show, I'll show you what I'm really capable of. Yeah. Yeah. It speaks it's to personal. how much he cared that yeah. he he. I mean, both about Rainey's herself, and, and I'm sure about Maraxes, about the dragon, their power, the humiliation aspect. Yeah. yeah it, he loved her. Like you're yeah. right. Like he loved Rainey's. It seems pretty clear. Like as much as he, it's hard to maybe understand what love means to a person like that. But he. I mean, he loved her. That was his sister and his wife. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, he knew her since they were, like, <laughs> That part's hard his... to understand, too. Yeah, that's yeah. Hard, hard to understand, but <laughs> yeah. he's, he's known her in t- his entire life. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, like, a year and a half older than her, two years older than her. They were a very tight-knit group, even, and he obviously favored her over Visenya, personality-wise and in bed-wise, which those are probably yeah, very related. Yeah, think about how depressed <laughs> the other dragons are, too, probably, by this loss. Like, Keening yeah. or whatever from Araxes, upset. Yeah, and probably... If we're right that dragons' emotions and the the emotions of the Targaryens feed back and forth, Valerian would have been ornery. Yeah, if, and it would have been Aegon more ornery, vice versa. They would have had like a vicious, you know, si- Tri- the trickle circle. down effect yeah. at court. Yeah, no, don't get on, don't 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 say, don't get on his bad side today or the next year or two. <laughs> you know, he's Aegon's real, really uh Really mad like today. We, we want to understand or justify this, but in the end, he's just going through what thousands and thousands of other people went through too. Yeah, they just don't have his privilege. Yeah. they just yeah. don't have the ability to exact this revenge. They very, would have though. Well they would have. I, yeah. I do. Yeah, a maybe. lot of them yeah, would have. Maybe. Not all of them. Lots of them would have been like, "Stop yeah. it!" Lots of them would have taken the Ilaria Sand route of it all, and I'm like, where, where does this stop? Where does this end? Yeah. Like, it ends with me. This is at the heart of why real world governments don't want their citizens owning massive weapons of destruction because just <laughs> any random person could l- get really mad and just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause massive devastation. Yeah. So just a little bit of devastation, which also sucks, but at least is manageable. Yeah. Just imagine if everyone had a dragon. And, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can cause a lot of damage with your knife if you go or out your with car. The, yeah, yeah. Or your car. That's I mean, the, yeah. you can. You can go out with a car and you can cause a lot of damage, but you could cause more if you had a plane and yes. you flew it in. Yeah. Even a little prop plane can do a lot yeah. of damage. It's true. And some of those things we mentioned too, though, at least they have all these other values. Right. Like it's I can't tell you how much I just I dream of a world where the dragons get used to like haul equipment and transport people back and forth, just used for productive, yeah. innovative things yeah. instead of just weapons of war. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, well, <laughs> I would actually love it if anyone knows any fantasy series, books or games. Or, where that's a thing. Or, yeah. I would oh, like to know yeah. about, about dragons as like long haulers as like. As, uh, yeah, I would like to, I'm sure that it exists in some franchise, so please let us know. <laughs> Clearing paths for roads. Yeah, doing and, like yeah. productive, indu- like being, being used for Heating industrial work. That yeah. can, can you just yeah, picture yeah, a dragon with a hard hat and some coveralls? <laughs> Gosh, yeah. a dragon or, at yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cat calling the women that walk by. <laughs> dragon calling. <laughs> A lord, so we've already established earlier in this episode that a lord's ransom in gold is a pretty huge amount. If it's weight or weight based or not, it's a lot of money, right? 
four lords of the hellhole decide of Rainey's death. That's crazy, right? Four in a row were murdered. And what were the payoffs for this? What were the ransoms for, for these bounties? What were the bounties on these lords? Like, well, uh, this much for a Fowler, this much for a Martell, even more for a, for a for an Uller, because they're the that's the house that killed Rainey. So that's why four in a row. I, I kind of suspect the the rate was higher for Ullers, because four in a row were killed. Like that's wild. Like how do they keep getting them? Like where's your guards, man? Do you have like I guess the money was just that tempting? Or these were these non Dornish people that somehow snuck in there and were able to pull this off? Or were these Dornishmen turning against their own for this huge amounts of money that they were being given? I mean, you can't always tell who's Dornish and who isn't, but you often can. So. This is where I wonder, like, appearances and where they're like, did racism and prejudice start? Because we're like, we can't trust anyone who's not Dornish, or maybe we can't even trust other Dornish. If I mean, four lords of the hellhold in succession murdered. Like, we're not talking about a very long period of time here. This is like within a year or two or three, I guess. Four at most? That's that's crazy, right? You know, another thought in this in this realm is that once Aegon is maybe making it personal and assassinating people or whatever, like... What do you think individual lords might do? That's like, making it personal too. Yeah, even more. Yeah, like, like they might have also wanted to go assassinate somebody for revenge, but some code held them back. Or, but now, well, the king's doing it. I'm doing like yeah. some of the assassinations might not have been Aegon. It might have just been individual lords of different castles or realms that have been attacked by the Dornish, vice versa. That's a great point because that's what I was saying. It's like, well, Aegon was conducting himself honorably as a conqueror. You know, none of this cunning. Con- but now he's not, arguably. Well easier to argue that he's not than, than he wasn't before <laughs> but yeah the gloves are off kind of thing like well if he's not going to duck himself honorably then we're not either like yeah we have to sink to his level and it worked like there was murders on both sides you see lord connington murdered in while hunting like i'm very curious to know about the circumstances lord merton's like this his whole household poisoned by a cask of dornish wine I bet that stopped trade of Dornish wine. People are like, I'm not touching that. <laughs> you know, no Dornish wine for a while. It was a while before anyone. A lot of people hiring food tasters and things like that. You just, the anxiety, the paranoia, that just anyone could murder you because the price on your head is so high. Like, how do you live like that? And this is going to be true for Stormlands lords, Reachman lords, and Dornish lords. Probably less so for the farther north you go, they're not so worried. Like Lannister lords, or Western lords, they're not worried. Northern lords are ignorant a lot of this is even happening <laughs> so a lot of this activity on both sides is what we def- would define today as terrorism you know yeah oh yeah you're totally right yeah this i mean and it's terrible you can see why this is terrifying <laughs> like uh, how, yeah. how do you live yeah. with people are suddenly afraid to you know go out in the woods or eat their food or drink their drink you know in their own like home day- normal daily at- lifetime activities even of relatively innocent people are suddenly now in jeopardy soon i don't want to wait to the end to bring up this comment from dornish dame I wonder if there were any murders that were blamed on this conflict that actually had nothing to do with it. Oh, yeah. Someone like, someone's so like, I just hate that like, guy. And I was like, yeah, I just hated that guy. Targaryens <laughs> did that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Yeah. Spe- like, and that brings me to another point. Like, the Targaryens were offering these huge ransoms for, like, any Dornish lord and maybe more for an Uller, maybe more for a Martell. I don't know. But were the Dornish assassins getting paid? For their kills? The same way? Like, did the Dornish lords put bounties on? Like, did they have as much money to offer? The will might. But I don't know if they had the same level of cash. These, are, these might be more like loyalty murders rather than I'm getting paid. If the Dornish assassins were getting paid for their kills, I suspect it was less money. Because I don't think Dorn had as much money to give. Unless you're the wills. It might have been water rations. <laughs> 
murders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you kill this man, you get we just need water. three gallons of water. Like, three gallons. Oh my god, that's so much. <laughs> Never mind that they don't have gallons, but hmm. <laughs> they surely have some unit of measure. And this mention of in the quote of how the sands around the hellhole were fused into glass. That is perhaps a reference to the nuclear testing, which would be fresher on people's minds given the movie Oppenheimer, which I haven't myself seen, but I know that is the Trinity atomic bomb testing. There was glass in the sand after those super heat. So dragon tells you a little bit how hot dragon fire is. It's up there. It can make the, the sands turn to glass. That's crazy to think about. Does anyone have dragon glass sand? Dragon glass? What do you call that? Dragon sand? <laughs> some some hullers <laughs> might have cracked some pieces off and put p- little panes of glass in there. Can this you get the uh, nuclear... Can, can you get the tri- trinitite, that substance that the sand became in the area? Well, uh, one... This is nuclear glass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can, can you get that? One, now. Two, could you get it at a certain point when it was not contaminated or something? Like Maybe you couldn't get it five years later, but maybe now... Yeah, is it safe. radioactive? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if we can get trinitite, uh, but that's what it's called. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. That's very interesting. So... Continuing, this is the year 10 AC, each door in his castle burned at least once by Vagar or Balerion, except Sunspear. So this is another strategy they were going for. They were apparently trying to turn the Dornish against Sunspear to, make the, to, to get people to believe that Sunspear had cut a side deal to avoid burning while letting the rest of their countrymen uh, take this suffering on them. It didn't work. Dorn- they, they didn't, the Dornish didn't fall for that. They're like, they were too united. They were like, yeah, that's not... Maria didn't turn against us. <laughs> it wasn't a very, I don't think this was a very good try. And the reason it's a rumor is because it's not proven, but there, the Fire and Blood goes into detail about finding letters that seems to prove this. I'm like, it seems pr- like it definitely happened. It just wasn't a very good plan. There could have been another variable, too. Maybe there were a lot of scorpions around Sunspear. Okay. Or, you yeah. know, so they maybe had better defenses of all sorts. It might have been like, not only is there some uh, you know, strategic value to not attacking them that maybe it'll turn the rest of the country against them but also they're more difficult to attack they're yeah. farther away they might have had more defense and resources so. yeah and there was the mention last episode about the rumor that they had sent away for to lease for some sort of anti-dragon gear which ironically that happened at the hellhold instead and it wasn't any it was just a scorpion bolt which is already sort of a standard issue thing which might have been there might have been an uptick in in need for those, given that's one of the few things that can hope to hurt a dragon. I say, yes, you can definitely purchase Trinitite. You can. So definitely is it not can. radioactive? Uh, yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not radioactive, but it's it's very limited uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah, there's not a lot of it. Yeah. There's ways to prove it. They prove it on the desert. You, you, There'll be plenty. I mean, you can test it for authenticity and stuff using spectrographs. And I don't know. You buy very small samples. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyways, it's a risky thing to deal with, apparently. Okay, all right. Well, the as the escalations continued to escalate. The retaliatory murders continued. They kept targeting lords of the Stormlands and the Reach, but they also aimed higher. Quote, The king was attacked thrice and would have fallen on two of those occasions, but for his guards. Queen Visenya was set upon one night in King's Landing. Two of her escorts were slain before Visenya herself cut down the last attacker with Dark Sister. Remember that we're still early in King's Landing's development and there's no Red Keep. So defense and security of the royals is not what it is now. Which again is a point about Aenys, right? 
I would, if I were a dragon rider, sleep in a room with one door and my dragon sleeping in front of that door with it pressed against it. So there's no way in. <laughs> now, that would be a problem if the dragon died in its sleep. I would be trapped in there. But, you know, <laughs> still, that's what I would do. If this was the state of affairs with assassins going everywhere, I'm not as brave as, as Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys, though. <laughs> so, hey, let's also check in with King's Landing and see that it's grown. It's, it's rapid growth has continued. It's only 10 AC. And it's already as big as Gulltown or White Harbor. Technically, it's about 12 years old or 11 years old because, remember, it, it started to become a thing before the second coronation, which is what 10 AC refers to. But we're, we're only adding an extra year, year and a half there. That's still like a, an astonishingly large place in such a short period of time. Not unrealistic, but way faster than anyone probably expected it. And the problem there, and, and there's a lot of things we could say about the growth of King's Landing, but if we're sticking to the topic of assassinations, a big, new, ungoverned, unmanaged sprawl of a city that's like they're struggling to keep up with its growth. There's tons of places to hide and plan, like uh, some hitmen or whatever. There's, it'd be really easy for them to evade authorities and blend Almost in. Almost everyone is new in town, yeah, so yeah. it's easier to find someone that can't be recognized or who's willing to do something or whatever. That's a great point. Everyone's I, new I in town. I want to say this is, <laughs> this is a, a minor tangent, but uh, uh, a couple of things I want to say. One is that the population will be even more explosive soon because people will start having kids. Like almost all the population there has come there from elsewhere, but now that population will start to have, will create new generations. Ooh, new point. people will still keep coming from other places. But the other thing is cer certainly it was, you know, less stable than, than most other cities. But I seem to remember way back thinking about the idea that Aegon, when he was traveling around before he even declared war or whatever, was probably learning about how to build a city. He's probably learning about infrastructure and such that cities would need because he had this idea in his mind of creating what came to be King's Landing. I bet he had some some groundwork set up, especially, again, because we know he brought in wards from all the other families. I bet there was a lot of planning ahead of time for this city's growth. It probably wasn't complete chaos, even though it yeah. wasn't completely stable either. It wasn't planned. Like, they wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a city that they're like, okay, this is streets are built on a grid. Yeah, it was just... People just build stuff where they want to. <laughs> like, I'm going to build a house right here. And no one's, there's no zoning or anything well, like that. Well, that's what I'm saying. I wonder if there was some zoning, if there was a grid. There if, might if have been Aegon something. did, had done some research ahead of time. It, the text kind of indicates not. to happen to build a city the, up. The text mm -hmm. kind of says no to that. Like, kind of oh, just, right. things kind of just happened. Things just kind of appeared. I mean, it's not super specific. There, there might have been some planning. Like, certain areas may have been designated. Well, no one can build here except the king. I, I, I'm sure things like that happened, but... It sounds like a lot of it was pretty haphazard. Either way, it wasn't, it was a, a thing regardless, like lots of a fast growing city that they probably didn't plan to grow this quickly. And yeah, lots of danger inherent to that. Lots of management, lots of time needs to be spent like managing all that. A lot of that would have been on Visenya and the small council. Even if it was well-planned and orchestrated, they probably didn't account for the fact they would still be at war with Dorne. Yes. And Dorne would be assassinating people and poisoning people and all this other stuff. So. Yeah. So Visenya also takes to sleeping in armor. She's sleeping in her armor, which is interesting because right around this time, she's pregnant. A little bit harder to sleep in armor when you're pregnant. It's a little harder to sleep in general when you're pregnant. So she, she was toughing it out quite a bit. All yeah. the more important to sleep in the armor when she's pregnant, though. Right. Yep. All the more need for the breastplate or the stomach stretcher <laughs> for that to fit. But, you know, she's got the Smiths for that. You know, she, she can handle it. Uh, so she twice fought, fought off Dornish attackers that came for her brother and fought off some that came for her. Maybe while pregnant. 
You know, we got that same math when we're considering when Anis was actually conceived versus when he was actually born. Magor's born in the year 10. So she was pregnant early year 10 or late year 9 or something like that, mid-year 9. So by the time this is happening, she's pregnant. She's been pregnant for a bit. And that might help explain something that was probably necessary anyway, the formation of the Kingsguard. That happened in the year 10 AC, right around the time Magor was born. Very interesting to consider. Now, Visenya is saying, you got to, you know, your guards are slow. You need more work. You need to be protected. I'm cutting you in the face to prove this. We've talked about that before. Uh, Aegon finally agreed. And Visenya got it right. She said, he's like, well, okay, then we'll... We'll have a tournament, and the best warriors will become the first king of She's like, no, you dummy. It's not about being the best warrior. It's about loyalty. Who will give their life for you? That's what we want. That matters more than skill. Of course, you don't want unskilled, you know, kamikaze drone guards, but <laughs> you, you th- that's the m- m- number one is loyalty. Secondary is how good of a fighter they are. She's so right about that. And it's interesting that someone like Jaharis got that wrong. He was like, let's have a tournament. John Connington doesn't like Duck in Aegon VI Kingsguard because he doesn't think he's a good enough fighter. But Aegon's like, Duck will die for me. That matters more. So this young Aegon, he gets it. He understands the point of the Kingsguard better than almost everyone who came in between him and Visenya, even though he's actually probably not part of their dynasty. Uh, maybe he is. Though. We'll count it for Blackfire purposes. He, he's a rela- he's a relative of Visenya, <laughs> most likely. I could see lighting one or two people on the King's Guard based on skill because it won some tournament or something. Yeah, but not all of them. No. And not the commander. Not the commander. Yes, well said. Yeah, maybe one or two. Just to, that way, the it raises the overall profile. Oh, that guy is a member of that squad, and maybe their their loyalty maybe makes him a little more loyal. As yeah. well, and that the, and the skilled ones might bring up the skill level of the other loyal ones too, right? Yeah. Someone to train with who's so much so expert or whatever. And again, I, earlier I brought up how there wasn't much talk of poison. How Dornish are known for poison, and I don't think that's entirely deserved. It's not that they don't use poison. Well, the Red Viper certainly did many times, but he's just one guy, right? Uh, if you're gonna try to murder Aegon, Visenya, or these children, these royal children. Don't you think that maybe poison would have been one of their... There's no word about it at all. No no mention of poison. Maybe that's just because they never struck blows that would have allowed the poison to work. But you think you would have mentioned it. if it, They attacked with poison blades. and Visenya, That just makes them sound like they avoided greater danger. That just makes them sound tougher. Maybe, I mean, maybe they, whether true or not, the Dornish were party to the idea that Valyrians Valyri- or Targaryens were... Uh, immune to more poisons Ooh, and they're like not worth we're not worth our effort what, again it doesn't have to be accurate right yeah we know that's not true that, but they may have believed it true yeah, yeah like if they thought if they if they felt well, that's an interesting the propaganda had definitely hadn't thought of that that's a very interesting point either way though the birth of magor in this year it's a it's another twist because we don't know when in the year it happened and that would affect things like another child born would show that visenya is even more concerned with security she would be concerned anyway, and again, she would have been pregnant during some of these attacks and before them, so they, she'd be, that would be on her mind, like, okay, my child is in danger. Now, I'm not saying she didn't care about three-year-old Anies. I, I'm pretty sure she did. Regardless of what happens later, I think she wasn't murderous towards her own family. I think that's pretty safe to say. Still, she's going to care about her own child more than her sister's child, even if she's extremely fond of and loves baby anies this is the child of her body and she's probably gonna care about him more 
<laughs> she might even care more about her sister's child more now that she has her own. She Maybe she, yeah, like she can the bond and importance even more. So. Yes. I tell you that was one of the times where you saying Anis how you say it was very important in that sentence. She loves baby Amy. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry, it's just okay. I had last night I was trying to come up with a title for the rain when we get to Anis's rain, and I'm like Anise's mess or oh, something like no. the mess left by no. <laughs> You won't let me name it that, will you? I get, yeah, sometimes I get, we get people in our comments that are like, why don't you say it like Eris instead of Aries? <laughs> and it's because of, of Anise, because we don't want to say Anus constantly. Aries. Yes, that's why. <laughs> that's why. Other Targaryen names are pronounced a certain that. way to avoid saying Anus. Yeah, okay, anyways. <laughs> it all comes back to Anus. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, all of it is built around that. So she'd be more, even more concerned with security. You could easily see why that would matter to her more. It would already have been important, but to how this escalates, it's just like, okay, now I'm also concerned with my child's life. And it may have also, Nina points out, may have also maybe made her feel more a part of the dynasty. Like she was already maybe like the third wheel in some ways by being the one that Aegon, Aegon favored her, her sister. On the other hand, Rhaenys's past. So... Is Aegon now spending all those nights he spent with Rhaenys with Visenya? Is it like, are they together every night now, just about, since she's gone? Or is it he's still kind of like... I would guess no. I would guess no. He didn't like her as much. But he's still... And now there's a second baby. There's less need to father other children. Uh, There's an heir and a spare. That's that's my other question. I mean, he was with Rhaenys more than Visenya, right? Yeah. But like, how many nights did they just spend alone? Good question. The other question, yeah. like maybe he still spends those nights alone that he would have, but there is more time with Visenya because he still wants to, you know. Yeah. Another topic that is like the Kingsguard is one that we will fully flesh out another time. Not just Vis- is Visenya herself, not just her, but her rumors of her use of magic. Now, this is one of those things where she would not tamp down any rumors that result in her seeming more scary more intimidating because she liked to rule by fear fear like it's, it's clear by how she advises megor later that she's very pro fear as a means of control whereas maybe her brother and sister were less about that they used it but not to the extent that visenya seemed to rely on and yeah so they might have felt the duty to have more children with Rainey's out of Rainey's dead, and and they got one certainly. Who boy did they get one? Magor, ooh. they might have. Uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> not exactly what they aimed for, I suppose. But they're also still in between, just burning all the castles in Dorne, like taking turns flying down there, burning a bunch of castles, while maybe one of them is ruling, while the other flies down there to torch some castles, and they take places or switch places and go back. So what is this like? Burn a castle check for surrender, burn a castle, check for surrender. And their plan is to repeat until it just ends. Well, it, it didn't, at least not because of that. That's not what caused it to end. The, the uh, go until it sort of ends plan did not pan out. And meanwhile, the murders are still playing out. We got another year, the year 11 AC, just more people getting murdered, more people living in fear. The anxiety of that building, it, it, it snowballs. Uh, or sandballs, to use a Dornish term, I don't know. They're living in fear, and these lords can't govern their people properly. And what are they governing? Their lands are devastated. Their people are in hiding or dead. Again, like, how do you govern from a cave? What, who are you... What are you administering? 
What orders are you giving to what farms are you telling to send? The farms are devastated. There's no one that's like, there's less governing to do. Incidentally, that is a, a third reason why Aegon may not have attacked Sunspear is that he did want to rule Dorn. Yeah. And if he burns down their prized city and the rest of the country is already a blasted <laughs> landscape, like what's the point of even capturing Where are Dorne? you going to surrender? So, yeah. Where are we going to rule from afterwards? That's a, that's a good point. Yeah. You can't destroy it. Just turn the entire country into nothing, which is close to what he ended up doing anyway. But yeah, like he may not have expected. He, he probably thought they'd give up sooner than this. He was wrong, but he was certainly. Yeah. yeah. And here's another interesting point. Talking about assassinations and poisoning, there's no evidence the faceless men were ever used, which which kind of makes sense given their fees are, are are scale rather than a flat amount. Like, yeah, you have to pay 80% of your wealth. Well, it's like, uh, I mean, they, they would ask for a dragon, right? Yeah, they might. Well, the Targaryens, I don't think the faceless men would probably they never They would not even it. accept it. But the them. Dornish. Yeah. Yeah, I just don't know. If, yeah. I feel like they would, for, I feel like the faceless men would be likely to accept a discount from the Dornish, in fact, because they were there, you know, they were aligned in some point. ways. They'd be like, yeah, you get but a apparently price. It didn't happen. Apparently it didn't happen. They yeah, may yeah. have threatened to do it, though, as something we'll talk about next episode. But as far as we know, they didn't actually do it. Um, there's no evidence. Of that. It is, once again, something that could have been done on a more individual level. Mm. Individual Dornish lords or people who weren't yeah. necessarily even lords, just, a, you know, a farmer whose son was killed. I'm getting a faceless man, and he could have given up 80% of his wealth, and history would never know about That's it, but true. he still could have gotten some some key lord on the other side murdered. Yeah, it just wasn't Aegon or or Visenya, right. but it could have been Lord Con- Maria, maybe Lord or- Connington, that one who he was killed, maybe. Probably not one of those lords Hellholt, like we said, because it's probably not the faceless men probably weren't doing murders on behalf of, of the Targaryens or their allies. But it's still a consideration, and it's interesting to mention. Like There's, there's always things that a big part of what we do on the show is just to bring up things that aren't mentioned that, that maybe should have been mentioned, or at least we should wonder about. So the year 12 AC, this is basically the last year we're going to discuss today. We're going to basically barely touch on year 13. That's when things end. Things couldn't get much worse in Dorne. I'm calling this section still unbowed, unbent, maybe a little broken, though. But they still hadn't given up. Quote. By then, Dorne was a smoking desert beset by famine, plague, and blight. A blasted land, traitors from the free cities called it. Yet, House Martell still remained unbowed, unbent, unbroken, as their words avowed. One Dornish knight, brought before Queen Visenya as a captive, insisted that Miriam Martell would sooner see her people dead than slaves to House Targaryen. Visenya replied, that she and her brother would be glad to oblige the princess. The gloves are really off there now. That's just, oof. Pretty underrated statement there, huh, Sean? That is just, that's just, that's pretty evil. (laughs) And the unfortunate thing is that there's a third option, right? Why can't you be allies with the Targaryen? Now, I understand the answer why you can't at this point especially, but she approached it from the get-go that we're either free or slaves. Well, is there something in the middle before you let all your people yeah, there's, have their lands there, and homes and lives destroyed? It's a big leap from free to slave. Like, there's definitely some in-between yeah. there. <laughs> the Targaryens, like you said, the Targaryens are just so invested now. Like, they, they've gone this far. They can't just back down based on their views of what makes what would allow them to hold power. And if they lose here, if they lose in Dorne, and that, to them, in their minds, that gives license to the other kingdoms to challenge their rule as well. It's like, well, you weren't strong enough to defeat Dorne, even with all of the power of all of the kingdoms behind you. It's a big loss. They don't want to take that loss. They don't want that on their rap sheet. It already looks bad, though, because they haven't been able to win. Even if they don't lose, they haven't won. And what are they going to do? 
What's left for the dragons to destroy? What strategy is going to change things? Like, what can they... Destroying everything didn't work. They didn't surrender when it says Dorne is a smoking desert beset by famine, plague, and blight. They're, if that's not going to get them to give up, then what? what's left to torch to make them give up? It's like, oh, now we'll give up. You destroyed the last tree, you know? Like, what? <laughs> I don't... It's clearly they're not going to give up, given what you're doing isn't going to work. The Dornish are fighting for freedom and homeland and, and, and revenge and all that. And despite all this devastation, despite how much damage has been inflicted on Dorne, Dorne's still very capable of causing great harm outside of their own borders. Quote, The most infamous act of that bloody age occurred in 12 AC when Will of Will, the widow lover, arrived uninvited at the wedding of Sir John Catherine, heir to Fountain, to Alice Oakhart, daughter to the Lord of Old Oak. Admitted through a postern gate by a treacherous servant, the attackers slew Lord Oakhart and most of the wedding guests, then made the bride look on as they gilded her husband. From there it gets worse. I didn't make Sean read the worst part of the quote. They assault yeah. <laughs> the women and sell them all into slavery. And remember, folks, selling people into slavery ain't normal in Westeros. So this is another escalation uh, here, and this is yet more evidence that the Dornish were working with certain elements in Essos. They sold those people into slavery not for the cruelty, but for more money to fund the war effort, most likely, or maybe both. <laughs> they certainly wanted the money. And this was maybe sold to that pirate king, or using him as an intermediary, or some other pirate king, or just they have Lysine slave buyers there in in Sunspear, they're just working with these folks openly. Who knows? But these slavers had to come from somewhere. They're not normally there to work with. So, And that's maybe to replace some of the trade that they lost because they can't pretty much trade any other industry. Like all the other things are shut down by Dragonfire and the destruction of the Planky Town. So slavery might be one of the few things left to, for some of those merchants coming from elsewhere to be like, well, we got no goods to buy. What about human goods? Ugh. As brutal as it is, it's a very human, like, historically supported style escalation. This is the kind of thing that happens. The longer a conflict drags on, the more hate is sowed, the more people are dehumanized, the more they become willing to inflict atrocities on others. You might, okay, you might think, you're probably like me, if I did that to somebody else, I would have nightmares for the rest of my life. I, if I witnessed that, I would have nightmares for the rest of my life. Let alone you know, having it inflicted on you. Of course, that's the, the even the, the third option, which is the worst. But what if you've already been in a war like this for eight to ten years? You're already at the point you, you're having nightmares for the rest of your life. This is just changing the the variety of those nightmares. You're, well, I'm going to have nightmares about torture and about dragon fire and about being sleeping in caves. All So to someone that already has acquired a lifetime of trauma, adding a little more doesn't mean anything. Or adds very little. Like, you're already kind of semi-broken. You're already accustomed. You've already normalized something that no human should have to normalize. And consider what the, the, the mental state of a veteran in this war, especially on the Dornish side, someone who's been involved in this since the beginning. What they've been through, what they've lost, what, what it must be like inside their mind. It must be like, if you're strong enough to hold on, if you're strong enough to keep going, well, that's amazing. But that doesn't mean you're not doing a lot internally to, to keep yourself going, to struggle against that trauma, to keep moving, to not just give up. So 
brutal, really nasty, very realistic when you think about it that way. And that's what we try to do. We try to make this we try to make this fantasy world as breathable as we can. And George, we have such a great floor for that because George does such a good job. Now, Fontaine is not on the map. We don't actually know where it is, except that it's in the Stormlands, likely on the border. It's likely in the in the marches. You know, it's likely a longtime enemy of the Dornish. There's probably atrocities on both sides. Maybe not quite to this level, quite quite this brutal. But yeah, they've raided each other in the past. But probably not. Maybe not these individuals. Maybe you know, maybe just their ancestors. I can imagine a town not existing anymore. You yeah. know, like imagine a large percent of the population of the bloodline that the resources and everything of that town were at that wedding yeah. and were stolen away. So. Well, House Catherine still exists. So there is that. But yeah, maybe their power was permanently reduced um, because of that. We don't know how many men it was like on one hand, a small group would be more efficient and subtle and, and easier to to sneak in. But you need enough men to like be able to overpower like the the fighters that are at the wedding, which would be several people like most of the men there would be trained at arms. They might not have been ready for it. But they, you know, they'd leap to action as best as they could when threatened. So eventually, Walter Will will succeed the widow lover. His, this is his son. I wonder if he was part of this raid, if he was like a, one of the commandos that was at his side. The Will of Will is still remembered in Fontaine and in Old Oak to this day. Font, Old Oak is way the hell over in the Reach. It's not particularly accessible to the Dornish. It's very much to the northwest within the Reach. But yet they still remember him because of this, because their their son was gelded in front of the wedding guests. And well, uh, yeah, you don't forget that too easily, I don't suppose. Uh, so I think that probably there's still prejudice between the Oakharts and the Wills. Obviously, when Ares Oakhart was in Dorne, he was constantly like an Oakhart in Dorne. I need to be looking over my shoulder at all times, <laughs> you know, and he wasn't wrong. But he, of course, missed where the real danger was coming from. It's coming from inside your own bed, Ares Oakheart. Yes, indeed. So th- quite an episode here with this, this mini, this invasion of, of Fontaine and this move by the will of will. Like, this is the kind of man that excels. When you have a war like this, the, the guy who is the best at escalating, the guy who's the cruelest, is the, the, the one who comes out on top. The widow lover would never suffer any direct consequences for this now or later. His family would. They would reap the consequences of his actions. But that's a tale for later because it's not soon. It's more than 15 years later. That's when he's going to die of old age. Never going to be brought to justice. But, man, that's, that's what happens in real life sometimes. Sometimes the worst people get away with things. And... uh not, and of course, in Dorne, he wouldn't be viewed as a bad guy. He'd be viewed as a freedom fighter to most, as a hero. And uh, in some ways, he was. <laughs> Not for this, though. <laughs> Not for this. this <laughs> I don't think this helped move the war, the needle on the war at all. I, I, don't, I don't think so. But one person who did die very shortly after this, that did change the war, and by change it, I mean end it, the death of Miriam Martell. After all this, of all things... It was just simply old age. So somewhat anticlimactic, but very realistic. She just died of old age, and her family was like, we would like to do things differently. <laughs> her heirs had a different plan. Not quite the same as stubborn, tough Miria. Uh, and by the way, the Nina writes, the deathbed slander against Miria's supposed sexual activities is an obvious reference to the same equally untrue story about Catherine the Great, 
Empress of Russia. Similar tales about her told about, you know, horses and crazy stuff like that. Um, yes, bestiality that is almost certainly not true, but does make for scandalous rumors and the kind of stories that people still talk about 500 years later. <laughs> uh, also true in Westeros, although more like 300 years later, still quite a long time. And yeah, so that's all that was needed. Wild, right? Like it wasn't Aegon doing, succeeding. It wasn't some great strategy. It wasn't some new plan. It wasn't some opportunity that they seized upon. It was just the leader dying of old age. That's what changed it all. And if you're a Targaryen, you're like, well, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. If you're a Dornish person, it depends on where you're at. If like, if you wanted peace, you might be like, well, I'm not going to say this out loud, but I'm kind of glad she died. But if you wanted to keep going, well, then you didn't want this at all. You did not want her passing, but you couldn't have been surprised for a 90-plus-year-old person to die. And, you know, this was a, a win, if you will, for the people because it at least paused the war. But the Targaryens still didn't get Dorn. It still wasn't really the goal, yeah. right? It's yeah. just a pause in hostilities. So, and, 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 you know, maybe a little lucky on the part of uh, everyone involved, really, that the, the heir to Maria didn't want to keep going, wasn't also personally motivated to get revenge. You know, it, it, this could have continued to drag on easily. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Several questions here from y'all today. I'm glad to see that. We inspired some dis extra discussion in the comments. Dornish Dame says, do I do find it interesting with this cycle of vengeance that the member of House Alder we know best in the main series wants to end that cycle? Ilari. Yes. And we did an episode on Ilari and we made we did make that point. I also thought that was interesting. She and, and of course, we we theorized that, that was part of why that being so close to that, being at the epicenter of cycles of vengeance is where you might find someone that has the wisdom to see the better way, to see why it should stop, to, to, to look at it from a, a higher point of view and say, when is this going to stop? Like, you are out here, like, Tywin died by his own son painfully, and you want more. <laughs> like, damn, like, it's really never going to end if that's not enough for you. Sometimes you need that person who themselves has motivation for revenge to be the one to not seek it to get other people to fall in line. Very good point. Yeah. Like if I don't want revenge, then what are you, what are you all on about? You know, I'm the one who truly suffered here. You know, me, me, me meaning Ilaria <laughs> in this case it was my husband that died. My lover died. Yes. To you, he's the red viper. To you, he's this and that. But he was my lover and the only person, the person who knew me best. And I was the person who knew him best. So I know better than you what he wanted and what he didn't want. Yeah. Amy Collins Russell says, look up the board game Flamecraft. Is that in reference to dragons like making things and building stuff? Ooh, yeah. Yeah, there's just, so. all, all the next ones are about that. Oh, cool. We really inspired some things with that one. Huh? Wheezy Squeezebox as a team of dragons pulls the devil god's sleigh across the sky and till the end of the moon. Is that a game or a story? No, it's a Chinese, uh, I believe Chinese, but it's a uh, fantasy TV show that Wheezy Squeezebox has been uh, promoting in our oh. chat for quite a while now. Cool. So anyone who is in our chat has seen those words before. But okay. yeah, an example in there. Very good. Ad Z says, hi, all great discussion as always on the subject of dragons being used in other ways. Take giants that help the children of the forest build the wall. Yeah, very good point. That is a very good point. They, they were used for that or the rumor is very strong there. I believe it. And and we certainly wondered about like, did the dragons help build the Valyrian dragon roads? Like they're so long and big. Yeah, we've we've talked about things like that before. Maybe the fused walls. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very possible and a good parallel. 
Phil H says, when DHL started, it stood for Dragon Hauling Logistics. <laughs> but since dragons <laughs> went extinct, they had to change that. <laughs> nice one, Phil. Like that. Very good. Sean, you pulled out a few names for us here to thank some patrons for their support. A few somewhat at random here. Who do you got today? Yeah, one of my favorite favorite parts of this community is uh, these names that we get, these mashes of people's interests into the world of Westeros. And uh, somewhat at random, but I've been making an effort to get some new and some old. We've got... Black Matos, Stormrider, Captain of the Rusted Hinge. By the way, I ran into Black Matos, Stormrider at MAGFest last week. It's our good friend Matt. Yeah, his name really is Matt. Matt McSorley, yeah. (laughs) Another one of my favorite parts of this community is running into the people in real life. Yeah. Great part of cons. (laughs) Jeremy Flowers, proprietor of the Mummer Troop Old Town Funk. That would be my favorite Mummer Troop for sure. (laughs) Aileen Archer. Queen Captain of the Border Collie. You said it right. That is how you say her name. I I said Eileen for many weeks, months, years, and she corrected me one day. You got it right on the first try. Good job. <laughs> I think it was at least probably luck. So <laughs> <laughs> Grant of Hawksite, Watcher of the God's Eye. Mm, Hawksite. That's cool. Alder Snow, Bastard of Bear Island, known as the Northern Fury, as fierce as she is loyal. Cool. And finally, this week, we've got Wisdom Mendax. Bastard of Starfall. You can find all these Patreon names, whether interpreted correctly by me or not, at historyofwesteros.com, along with everything else we mentioned throughout this episode. If you want to find a link, if you want to find past episodes, if you want to sign up for something, if you want to use our affiliate links, if you want to you know, uh, peruse one of our sponsors, historyofwesteros.com. It's not fancy, but it's got everything that you need to link to all the places that we may have referred to. People who listen on podcasts are going to be like, what do they mean by Aziz interpreting names correctly? Because I'm going to cut that. And now you have a reference to a thing I'm going to cut. <laughs> Aziz interpreted all the patron names to mean jerk. Yeah, everything means jerk. <laughs> Wisdom, yeah. that means jerk. Hawksite, yeah. jerk. <laughs> Bear Island, jerk. <laughs> Archer, queen, cap, jerk. <laughs> Border collies, those are all jerks. The, the jerkiest yeah, that's dogs. that's what happened. Yeah. I cut it, but now he's back doing it again up to his old tricks. He's I'm just, making it hard. Yeah. Making Ishaya's job jerk harder. The jerk of house jerk. <laughs> <laughs> to be found at the oh. jerk store. That's right. <laughs> The trivia answer. The question was, what title created by Aegon was held by only one person ever? That is the Warden of the Sands, held by John Rosby. Yes, he did plummet to his death, thanks to Miria and her knights. Next time, next week, we'll be discussing the, the peace deal, the mystery of the letter of Rhaenys, whether Rhaenys lived, and all the associated stuff. The, the, Aegon, the letter from Dorne is one of the most interesting and popular mysteries from this era and i want to devote a little extra time to it but also setting up some of the other things that happened around it discussing some of the other things that happened around that same time in the era and then we'll move on to the rest of Aegon's reign and uh we'll go from there we also have some episodes that relate to ones we talked about today we mentioned Ilaria sand just now we mentioned nymeria parts one and two eventually we'll do the part three that's one of the things that might happen during the topics moot. Nymeria 3 might get some extra steam behind it as a project for us to finish. We've also mentioned Daron the first episode. We mentioned the Doom episode, the Century of Blood episode. 
We mentioned Under the Dragon's High Tower, which is where you can find more information, a much more detailed take on the invasion uh, in 8 AC of or 9 AC of Nightsong and the invasion of Joffrey Dane around Old Town. We go into a lot more detail about those incidents in Under the Dragon's High Tower. Also, Hardcore Houses came up. Uh, High Garden came up, really. Just a lot of stuff. Uh, don't forget, the Last Storm episode is available to patrons and members only. There's lots of other episodes you get by joining our Patreon. Our, I've lost count. There's so many bonus episodes you get by signing up for Patreon. And it's such a small amount relative to how many episodes you get. I hope you think it's a good deal. And if so, join us on Patreon today. Patreon.com slash History Westeros. Another episode you can get is the Red Kraken. Another one you can get is the Buildings of Brandon, meaning the Buildings of Brandon the Builder. That relates to our uh, discussion of giants helping build the wall. We have a whole episode on that. One that's available for patrons and one that's just out there. When Giants Roamed with our good friend Amanda, a.k.a. Crow Food's daughter. Thank you for those of you who attended live and made the chat bumpin'. We always appreciate that. Thanks as well to those of you who have signed up to support us, not just on Patreon, but on Spotify. We do have Spotify subscriptions available as well. It doesn't quite have the functionality of Patreon. We can't quite offer all the same things, but you get the bonus episodes. And it's a little easier if you're already subscribed to Spotify. You can just add that on to your monthly fee and then forget about it. So in some ways, it's a little simpler than Patreon, even if it doesn't quite have the same benefits. But we're not in charge of how any of that stuff works. We just do what we can to provide you all as many options as possible to support the show for other options check out our website thanks very much to nina go check out good queen alley with one l.tumblr.com thanks as well to joey and jesse and bran and michael clarfeld for our music and for our video intro and our maps so good so helpful makes our show look so professional yes we what we can't pull off we fake it with the help of friends yeah <laughs> Until next time, my friends, you know what to do. We'll be back with more Valar Re-Readus.